0: Okay, members, you're all welcome to a meeting of the Justice Committee, and if you can do your needful with any electronic uh, devices, if there's any interests, uh, financial or otherwise, relevant to any of the business today, now's the time to uh, to declare it. Um, I'll just note my previous interest again around the personal injury duty rate at this stage of the meeting. If any other members need to speak, then we're good to go. Yes. Sure. Okay. Okay, well then we'll move on. Um, The Oral Evidence Sessions member, if you're agreed, will be uh, reported by Hansard. There are no apologies, Um, so we are joined by the Deputy Chair, Linda Dillon, Doug Beattie, Sinead Radley, Gemma Dolan, Emma Rogan and Rachel Woods via the Starleaf facility, Um, and there have been no delegation of so, item two is the draft uh, minutes of the meetings that were held on the 19th and the 21st of January. Pages three to four of the table pack are the draft minutes of the 19th. And if members are content they their true reflection, then I will sign them accordingly. Members agreed. 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 And uh, if members are content then with the minutes of the 21st of January as being accurate, likewise I'll sign them also. Members agreed. 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 Some item uh, matters arising from them. The uh, committee for finance letter dated the twenty-second of January. The committee for finance has written to all the statutory committees, advising of its intention to coordinate responses from statutory committees on the draft budget twenty-one twenty-two, and has requested responses by the twelfth of February. Now, it is for each um, committee to determine what it wishes to examine in relation to the budget. The Finance Committee has provided some suggested lines of scrutiny um, which uh, will be helpful. Officials are going to be attending the meeting next week and they will provide an oral briefing on the draft budget settlement uh, for the Department of Justice. As agreed at last week's meeting, the views of the Department's eight non-departmental public bodies on the likely implications, potential pressures uh, arising from the budget uh, and the views of the Police and the Policing Board on the PSNI budget allocations have been requested. Um, and uh, we should receive them uh, on the 3rd of February in advance of our meeting next week. Uh, A draft committee response on the budget will then be prepared after the oral evidence session for consideration and agreement at our meeting on the 11th of February um, before submission to the Committee for Finance and the Minister for Justice. Another item uh, under matters arising, the Committee for Finance has forwarded a copy of correspondence that it has sent to the Executive Office seeking clarity on the level of funding for setup costs and uh, or the actual payments to victims that is required for the Troubles Permanent Disablement Payment Scheme um, and what has been sought for the 21-22 year. Uh, Members (coughs) may wish to discuss this matter with the Department of Justice Officials during next week's oral evidence session at uh, next week's meeting. So uh, members are asked just um, if we ask the Committee for Finance to provide the Committee with a copy of the response from the Executive Office whenever that becomes available.
1: Can I raise something, Chair, on that point? Yes, Paul. I was on the Finance Committee, as was Gemma, yesterday, uh, when we spoke to officials, uh, finance officials, uh, and it seems to be a case that the Finance Minister is going to go through what would be classed as an informal monitoring round to try and spend this money that's been carried over before it has to go back to the Treasury. The question I posed was, Surely, if either executive office or Justice Department, whoever is leading on this uh, pension scheme, surely if we're at a point where there's money going to be handed back to the Treasury, uh, it becomes treasury money. And if it becomes treasury money, why then before we would hand that over, could we not use that money to fund the pension scheme? Now I know there's a principled political argument as to who, should fund it, and I agree that it should be the Majesty's government. But in saying that, if it's treasury money that we are handing back, surely then we are than just handing back what could be up to 200, anything between 200 and 400 million. Surely that would go some way to financing and furnishing the pensioners or the the pension scheme. It won't be at all, by the sounds of things, but it will certainly be a good percentage of it and then argue the principled political argument as to who then fits the bill fits the bill with regards to the rest of the money and i, I believe then that would be Her Majesty's government and, and i think why, why i'm raising it now and not waiting to next week is because if that informal monitoring round is taking place at the minute with the finance minister speaking to all the departments really i think we should be asking the justice department to get their head around what a bid of that magnitude would look like and how they would could actually get it on the ground to make it legal holding some of that money back this year to get it into our system without saying we need it for this and then not being able to administer it or have the capacity to spend it and then it would have to go back to Treasury anyway. So I think it's something that we should be pushing on to the department now uh, sooner than later to make sure that, that the pension scheme is still very much in our minds. Thank you.
0: Okay. Well, I'm I'm not sure of what processes there could be to kind of identify a quantum of money, to seek to almost put it in like a trust fund or something, to draw it down whenever then it would become necessary. I, I don't really know what the accounting rules and all of that would be. But I'm happy if the, the Committee's content that we would um, write to the Department, um, just in addition then to the Committee for Finance, you know, asking what consideration is the Department of Justice given to trying to identify a way to secure funding for future pressures and that could relate to this for example. Um, so if, if, if members are content we could ask that general question then of the Department of Justice around this issue. Thank you. Okay. Then item 3 um, on matters arising, the Department has provided a response to the queries raised during the briefing on the January monitoring round position and the Budget 21-22 in December, along with a copy of the monitoring round template submitted to the Department of Finance. The information can be found at pages 6 to 30 of the table pack. The Department has also advised that in response to requests from the Department of Finance for further bids for COVID-19 funding, it has put down a marker for potential costs relating to the Northern Ireland Courts and Tribunal Service. Other costs, such as a potential increase in police overtime costs, are being kept under review, but a bid is not required for this at this time. So, members may wish to explore some of these issues further during the Budget Briefing Session next week. Okay, so if members are happy, we'll move on to the first oral evidence session that we're having, item four. It's the reviews of the support services for both operational and retired prison officer staff. So, we have the officials joining us via the Starley facility, and the relevant papers are at pages 19 to 169 of the meeting and I'm hopefully going to be welcoming Ronnie Armour, Director General and Brenda Brendan Giffen, Head of uh, Strategy and Governance from the Northern Ireland Prison Service to the meeting and uh, the session will be recorded by Hansard and transcript published in due course. So um, Ronnie, I am going to hand over to you to give us a, a brief overview of the key findings and then we shall take some questions. Thank you Ronnie. Thank you, uh, Mr Chairman. Uh, I am grateful to have the opportunity to attend the committee today to uh, speak about the two reviews published by the Minister uh, on
2: Monday of this week. Uh, I am not proposing any opening remarks to go through them in, in detail, uh, but I am very happy to take questions on any specific issue. Um, I do want, though, today uh, Chairman to welcome both reports uh, and to echo the words of the Minister in thanking Gillian Robertson and Graham Walker for the excellent work that they have undertaken. Uh, I hope that you will really agree that these are two uh, really good reports that will be really helpful to us uh, moving forward. Uh, I believe the reports clearly outline uh, what we must do if we achieve the level of support prison officers, past and present, truly deserve. Uh, The publication of these reports marked, I believe, a very good day for the Northern Ireland Prison Service Uh, and we look forward to implementing the recommendations in both reports in line with the timescales
3: that are outlined uh, in the Minister's Action Plan. I think it's fair to say, uh, Chairman,
2: that the reports have been well received right across uh, the Prison Service. I think they give recognition of the work that we've been trying to do Uh, and they also chart for us that course moving forward of what needs to be done. I am certainly very committed to delivering the reports and as you will know from the Minister's statement she has asked me to lead um, a programme board uh, in order to ensure that we deliver uh, as quickly as we possibly uh, possibly can. Um, I am happy to take questions today on any specifics around the report, I know you have had an opportunity uh, to look at
0: the recommendations over the past few days, and I'm happy to, to deal with that now. Okay, well thank you Ronnie, um, and obviously with the, the Progress Board being established that you're going to lead, um, and I note that all of the recommendations have been accepted by the Prison Service, um, and I welcome that uh, in terms of both reports, um, and you, you'll take this forward by way of implementation. Um, who else is on the the implementation body of that that you're going to be leading um, and at what stage would you hope to be able to crystallise the kind of financial resources that are going to, to be needed to put into effect all of the recommendations? Well I'll
2: be meeting next week with the uh, senior leadership of uh, the prison service uh, and will be allocating responsibility to different directors and different covenants to take forward specific uh, recommendations. Um, I will be doing that in consultation with, uh, if we take the the current staff, with Gillian uh, and and Siobhan, as you know the Minister has asked them to to work with us over the next number of months uh, in terms of evaluating our progress. So I've been already in discussions with both of them in relation to the action plan, uh, and I will be involved in the moving forward. But initially, uh, it will be an internal group. We will obviously have to pull in, uh, pull in others across the organisation, and indeed beyond that in terms of some of the scoping work we need to do around the around the costing. I'm, I'm very hopeful, Chairman, that we will have um, some more detail for the committee on the on the costing required. Uh, hopefully before the end of this financial year. I'm um, sure the committee will, will accept. If you're looking at, for example, the report from retired officers, uh, I mean, we know that somewhere in the region of, of 1,400 staff have retired over the past eight years or so. Uh, we're talking about many thousands when you go uh, back beyond that. So it is very difficult for us at this point to, to scope the scale uh, of, of what's going to be involved, particularly in providing uh, the, the service and the as recommended for the retired staff. Uh, but we will be working with PRRT to do that. Um, and I, well, I can tell the committee at the moment, and as you will know, this, I think we're talking significant
3: sums
0: of money, but, but I can't quantify it at this stage. But hopefully, before the end of the financial year, we will have a, a better idea. And was there was there any of the the findings, Ronnie, that um, surprised you? You know, obviously, I've, I've had a chance to look through some of it, and it you know it it speaks to areas where there needs to be changes and improvements you know from your perspective was there anything in that that caused you concern you know that hadn't been identified before and that recommendations are now being made that need to change no no i think uh chairman there's nothing in the report that that jumped out at me
3: uh, as a a particular surprise i mean i think we we have all known uh, senior leadership within
2: the organization the justice minister and the committee. We've all known uh, that, that there is work to be the work to be done here. We have, over the past uh, three years, been trying to make progress uh, around our present 2020 well-being work, and I'm, and I'm grateful that the report highlights that and does give us credit for that. Uh, but, but there's nothing that they're recommending uh, that, I'm, that I'm particularly uh, surprised about. I mean, my, my sense. Over the past six months as Gillian and Shalom have been doing their work, my sense is that the issues being raised with them uh, were not new issues. I mean, indeed, a number of members of the committee have raised uh, a number of these issues before. We've not been in a position,
0: uh, I think, to take uh, this forward in the, in the way that we now, that we now can. Yeah and that's I suppose I made that comment in the assembly that at least we now have a baseline and and that's something that we can measure against uh, by way of the improvements that need to be made so you know I do welcome these reports I think it it identifies issues now which will be very helpful because you first need to identify things to seek to change them and then have the structures to, to hold people to account for all of that and I do welcome the comments that have been made about you know the prison service your team wanting to do this in a very open, transparent way, and it's it's about trying to to get the best way forward as opposed to being defensive, maybe of uh, things that should have been different in the past. So, in that spirit, I do welcome the efforts that are being made. Um, in terms of the the retired officers, obviously it'll be important that you know the the PRRT is recalibrated, I suppose, somewhat and and is able to provide the kind of support then that may well come forward. And, and I accept that's difficult to quantify, given that so many of these officers have have been out of, you know, they have retired now for a number of years and they, they may not wish to even engage anyway. They, they may have moved on. So uh, how, how quickly do you hope to be able to identify the, the level of need that there may be and tool up the PRRT to be able to meet that?
2: Well, I think. I mean, I think the first thing that we want to do is to engage with the PRRT. We we'll obviously have to bring business cases and so forth together. My, my aim is to have uh, something in place by the second half of the financial year. I think the,
3: the action plan talks about um, uh, you know by by December service delivery tremendously. Uh, I mean, I am very conscious, Chairman, uh, that it will take PRRT some time to build.
2: Capacity um, and there is a risk, I think, that when we introduce this, that
3: we, we may affect the opening uh, front gate uh, in terms of the numbers of
2: staff who might come forward. And it is very difficult, as you just said, to, to quantify that. But, but we want to try and get to a position where we can enter an arrangement of the RRD, we give them time to scale up so that we can have something in place before the uh, end of the calendar year, but hopefully uh, a, little bit, a
0: little bit before that. Okay. Thank you, Ronnie. I'll bring in other members just at this stage. I may have some other points just to make in due course, but um, Rachel Woods, you've indicated to speak. Yes, Chair, thank you, um, and thank you, Ronnie and Brendan as well. And I also welcome the reports and the minister's statement on
4: Monday. Um, Paul has already asked uh, some of my questions just about R2 budget and finances and I'm looking forward to getting some more information um, from yourselves whenever it's available but my question relates to an issue that was brought up to me um, by constituents who I was, I was happy to have been able to feed into this review and, and bring them in as well but it was with regard to the um, civil service um, policies and warning on letters and the inefficiency terms and what was, what was going on and I appreciate that that is not something that was under the remit of yourselves but wider civil service HR and I know that that's in the recommendations as something that could potentially be done quite quickly so I'm just looking to see if that has, uh, that term has gone I know there some legal issues there. If there's any more information in terms of that, I know it's quite a minority point, but it was certainly one that was brought up to me recurring, especially when people were off with um, mental health issues and um, we told that they were um, off and were breaching efficiency. So uh, I just want to not an update on that, if possible. No, I, mean, I, think, I
5: think it's an, it's an important point uh,
4: in
2: terms of the letters. Uh, the letters have been amended. My my understanding is that the only use of the word inefficiency uh, in the letter is on on one occasion where the letter referred to procedures under the NICS inefficiency sickness absence policy Um, and that that is the current policy But other references to inefficiency as I understand it. Uh, Have been removed from the letter, and I think, that's a, I think that's a positive development. We will
4: be working closely with NICSHR on a number of the recommendations, as you will know in the report. And, and indeed, I'm creating the director of NICSHR next Monday to, to, start that, to start that process. And I will be raising the issue of the letter uh, with her, but, but my understanding is that that recommendation has been addressed. Okay, thank you, Riley, that's, that's brilliant. Um, there was another point. Just wanted to to read the Blossoms project. Um, I was reading about that with interest at Montgomery, um And staff, it said staff who had access to the provision identified that it was extremely beneficial. Um, but the majority of staff that participated in interviews were unaware of it. Is there any intention of rolling that out um, into the next well year and across the prison estate? Well we we do give a commitment um, in the action plan uh, that we will will look at this and
3: indeed uh, Governor McGillagree and I visited
2: the the blossoms project um, just outside Larm uh, about a fortnight ago Uh, and we've had some discussions with with the folk who run that. Uh, I mean I I have to be honest and say I didn't know a lot about this project uh, but I was extremely impressed when I went and spent an afternoon with them uh, just to see what they do and how they how they do it. Now when we talk about rolling this out, it is important I think to set some context. Uh, the, the programme can take up to 14 people at a time uh, and it and it makes a half day a week for a period of, of eight weeks. So you know if we want to, to look at rolling this out and I'm very confident we'll be able to do that, uh, you know the numbers that will go through it won't be huge uh, for a year, uh, but what MacArthur have been doing in their pilot is they've been focusing it on on the greatest need, and that's what I think we would want to do moving forward. But it's certainly an excellent project, well, well worth going to to see and spending time with the folks around. Thank you,
4: Ronnie, and I look forward to finally getting to MacArthur. I know we've had a number of false dons because of COVID, um, but certainly with that that's it. That's it from me, um,
0: chair. Thank you. And yeah, just wanted to re- um, welcome
6: both of these reports. I think they're very good. They're very timely. Okay. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Rachel. Um, Gordon Dunn. Thanks, chair, and thanks, Ronnie and Brendan, for your presentation. Just on the sick absence, uh, something that was discussed briefly in the chamber. I understand it's around three million pounds a year to cover sick absences in the past three years. Um. The Minister mentioned about the initiative spend to save. Uh, obviously we we welcome that and we want to see investment in in new processes and support for, for prison officers and for all staff working in the prisons. How do you think that that will help to address the, the major issue there is in relation to, to sick absence? When we
2: Trying to intervene early to give better support to staff to prevent uh, sick absence where we work we can. Uh, we have been trying to do that through the prisons well programme, as the report indicates, over the past uh, couple of years. And we, and we have seen uh, our sick absence rates uh, fall a little bit now. We were looking at the average number of days that an officer or were taking off. In 2015, it would have been sitting at just over 21, whereas in the past year, uh, that came down to 18.7. Now, you know, I know 18.7 is still too high and still a major challenge for us. But, but I think there is indeed there is evidence that we're starting to make some headway with this. And, and my hope is that as we implement this report, we bring even better support mechanisms in place for staff
6: that we can make further inroads into addressing uh, the sick absence um, issue that, that you're referring to? Yeah. Obviously, um, looking at, at, at that table, Table 7-1, uh, the absence rate is higher than any other government department. There, you know, there's a compa- comparison right across, and we appreciate that there are, are reasons for that, but I think it's important that more is done to try and address these issues because uh, we understand your your staff figures are about one thousand two hundred and sixty two, is that right, Ronnie? Uh, yes, I mean the the current uh continually
2: the up-to-date staffing figures, uh, Chairman, our operational staffing level is thirteen hundred and twenty for operational grades, and we have administrative and support staff in addition to that. So 1320, our full-time equivalent at the moment is 1292. So we're sitting about
6: 28 staff short of our of our operational uh, our operational target level. Okay, and obviously, uh, um, as a result of this sick absence, um, there obviously needs to be overtime or or additional staff brought in to cover. How is that covered, Ronnie, in relation to? the day-to-day management of the prison?
2: Well, when, well you're, you're right in, in, in saying that if you're at your staff and complement, that we're not very far away from it, mm. um, you know, overtime is not something that you would be expecting to, to rely on. However, you know, where you have staff options due to sickness, then obviously we have to cover those gaps and we would use overtime to do that. Um, We have been using, over the past year, very significant amounts of overtime,
3: um, because we've been dealing, as you know, with the the COVID pandemic. uh, We have every prisoner in single cell accommodation,
2: uh, which means that our footprint in each of the prisons is greater than it would have been this time last year. We obviously have to staff that as well, so we've been using overtime uh, to do do that. Um, so each, you know, each governor will have an overtime allowance for month. Um, over the pandemic, I've been giving them additional hours uh, to cover the pressures of, of
6: COVID. But that, that in practice, uh, Mr Governor is how it works. Yes, yeah, so there obviously is considerable overtime. That in itself puts stress on on staff as well, if they're continually having to work overtime, long hours and work weekends. Is that an issue that you're concerned about?
2: Well, it's not, it's not been an issue that has been uh, raised with me, but, but I absolutely uh, agree with the point you're making. You know, where staff are having to work uh, additional hours and lengthy hours, then yes, it would certainly add to, I suppose, the tiredness levels. Um, we, we haven't had any issue, I have to say, over the past 12 months or well beyond that in getting volunteers and people work overtime on a voluntary basis it's not it's not compulsory and um, we have not had issues getting staff to volunteer in fact our, our staff have been exceptionally good over the covid period in stepping forward uh, and, and doing some extra hours for us uh, right, right across the service
6: okay thanks for that thanks ronnie thanks
0: chair okay, thank you gordon um doug Beatty and then linda Dillon and then and i can see jemma emma sinead so i'll, I'll try to get you all in but um doug beady in the first instance uh, sure, thank you
7: and, and ronnie thank you um you're you're, you're as clear as always uh, in your in your answers and, and like you i welcome uh every aspect of this report i think it is genuinely first class uh, and it does Take us in the direction we want to go. Um, and, and, I'm, and I'm certainly not going to try to pick holes in it, but there are a couple of questions if you don't mind. And the first one is maybe around recommendation one, where it talks about uh, pay and grading, and then it goes on to grading quite a bit. But is there not still an issue that uh, when it comes to pay and the yearly pay issue that um, the independent pay review body findings aren't released timely enough to um, uh, allow people to look at it and scrutinise it and understand what we're going to Well, um,
2: the pay review body advice can dealing with the current year that, that we're in, um, I mean, the pay review
3: body made their report uh, back in, in September, at the end of September. Um, we, have, we have
2: accepted their report but there were some additional measures that I was keen to take, not, not least in the context that I think we're going into a very difficult period in terms of pay, where pay freezes and so on uh, are, are, are being talked about. So there were some additional things that I was keen to do over and above what the pay review body recommended and therefore we, we've gone into what has turned out to be a kind of protracted negotiation uh, with. With the prison officers association around this. Um, And that has delayed the publication of the report Um, because we we, we can't publish the report until it it is finalised. Now, you know, I have been in discussions, and Brendan in particular has been in discussions with the POA and and the senior leadership of the POA in terms of the chairman and vice chairman have seen the report Um, very recently, albeit that they have seen it. But I'm, I'm hopeful that we can reach an agreement with the BOA that will allow us to implement the report uh, very quickly uh, and do some additional stuff that we'd like to do. If we can't reach that agreement with the BOA then we will move forward to publish the report
7: and implement it, its findings. But, but that is an explanation without going into the, the minutiae of it, why there has been a delay this year. Yeah, and, and well, like, I, I get this because we probably have this conversation every year about about this and, and the negotiations that you go in every year, uh, you're absolutely right, it's protracted. Um, but I mean if you've accepted the independent pay review and then you're doing add-ons and then, you know uh, you know if it was released in September then you know you 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 would expect as we move into February um uh, that, that it should be able to be to be viewed and understood um, and even what your position is in, in trying to do things in regards. Um, to it, but listen, I'm not gonna, I'm not rattle on about that. I just always have a concern about about trying to get things fixed as early as possible. Pretty much in relation to recommendation one uh, and making sure morale stays in regards to to pay. But can I ask you another question, um, Ronnie? Um, I think it was recommendation five talks about shift patterns, uh, and within the prison service we have. Prison custody officers. We have night custody officers. We have uh, main grade. Um, is it not would it not make more sense when you look at these shift patterns that we have a universal grade, a universal position where an individual can work nights or can work days, so that we don't have the shortages of staff
8: that we are presently finding uh, in regards to night custody officers. Um, well, that, that takes it really back to the grading review piece that we're doing. Um, we are doing a
2: review of all of our different grades. Um, and you know, we have made good progress with this, but you know, it has been delayed because of because of COVID. We are hoping to get that grading review uh, complete in line with the commitments we've made in the action plan. I think that will then lead us into a discussion around different grades, what we do, and how we might uh, use your more, have a more universal, uh, universal approach. That that's certainly something that I would be, uh, that I would be open to. Um, I mean, in terms of the of the late custody uh, issue, um, I mean, I think the work of late custody officers is is different. Um, I I think we want to think very very carefully about how we would we would proceed with with that. You're right to say there is a shortfall at the moment, uh, but but there is a surplus then and the custody officer grade, which is which is offsetting that. Um, I mean in terms of the custody officers there there's an additional sixteen have been deployed this week uh, and a further class um, will be coming into the college and get the, the marked. So you know we are we are closing that gap, which at the moment is about where 30 short overall. But we are closing that gap, and I'd be very confident we have that gap closed uh, before the summer before the summer of this year. It is probably worth saying something just to, to put that in context. Uh, our last big recruitment campaign was around uh, custody prison officers. That was then uh, followed by one in terms of nine custody officers. So you can see that we have a surplus of around forty. Custody prison officers and a shortfall of around thirty nine
7: custody officers. So it, it's, it's a matter of timing, but I think we will have that gap closed fairly soon. But in answer to your, your initial question, yes, very open to look at how we can uh, we can better use our our grading structure. Yeah, I I I I'm, well, I have no doubt whatsoever that you are making efforts to to, to fill that gap, certainly in night uh, custody officers. I, I read it. I've spoken to to, to people about this. So I, you are moving in the right direction, but there still is that differential. And that differential means that a night custody officer who's on a night uh, who gets paid less than a prison custody officer. Um, that if you have to pick a prison custody officer to work nice to fill that gap, they're, they're each doing the same job but, but both are getting different both are getting different different wages. And that's why I'm sort of saying maybe this universal position where people can do all jobs. Uh, and that, that means you can direct your workforce slightly better wherever the gaps uh, you find are, as opposed to being stuck trying to recruit into one set of positions where actually all you need to do is just, just shift your workforce, if, if that makes sense? No, it absolutely makes sense. It. As
2: I said, it's something that we will look at when we've got the grading review complete, because that will, will give us a, a much better sense and a much better evidence base. I mean, the other group of staff, of course, that we, we shouldn't lose, sight of, are those who are working in the prisoner escort service. Yes, I
7: sure. You know, they're, 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 they're another group alongside the custody officers and CPUs. So we, we, we
0: will look at all of this in the room. No, listen, thank you, Brian, as ever. Thank you, Joe. Thank you,
3: Doug. Uh, Linda Dillon. Uh, hello, Joe, can
9: you hear me?
0: Yes, we can.
9: Thank you and thank you Ronnie for um, your answers so far and, and for coming to the committee today. I mean, as far as I can see, Ronnie all recommendations of the re- reviews have been um, accepted. Am I right in saying that? Yes, the, the Minister has accepted and I accepted the recommendations. There are some though that need discussion with the Department of Finance. Um, yeah. So, you know, we're, we're accepting those in principle subject to
2: discussion with the department of finance so i'm i'm going to open those discussions with the director of hr next week uh and then be ministerial involvement at a a later stage when when officials have worked through some of the details but but yes we we are supportive of the recommendations
9: okay i appreciate that and and i think it's good that that jillian and siobhan are going to stay on and i mean do some work and and do some follow-up on this because very often people do a report and then that's that's the end of their involvement so I think that's a positive a positive move and in terms of your, yourself I know that in conversations we've had you've been more than open to the suggestions around how things can be improved and I think that's, that's a positive attitude from anybody that's in a leadership role and I've said that to you before so just to make that point again can you just maybe give me a wee outline on what you think what recommendations you think will be the most ch- challenging or difficult to implement and then, in terms of recommendations five, six and seven, um, it sort of follows on a wee bit from what Doug was saying around the shift patterns um, you know, obviously there would be a culture change required to better support staff who, who are experiencing stress and mental health and all of that and may require a longer time scale, but could recommendations five, six and seven be done relatively quickly, do you think? Or is that going to take a period of time also? Um, and I suppose I'm also saying that on the basis of a conversation that we did have with some of the staff whenever myself and I were in and you had made some slight changes to shift pattern to try and improve things for staff and that, that was, um, and certainly in terms of staff that I spoke to, they, they thought that it was very well received and, and had helped in terms of staff morale and just in their general working conditions and improving that, so I know these are open to all of that, it's not a question of whether these will it, just cannot be done quickly. Well
2: I think in, in answer to your question, um, I think most of these things should be done this year, um, I mean we've outlined in each of the recommendations uh, a, a time scale that, that we're going to work towards, uh, I mean I, I share your view that the review of shift patterns is, is a very important uh, aspect of this report um, and I also welcome the fact that the, the authors of the report recognise that this is complex uh, and, rec- and recognise that, that I have a balancing act to do over here um, you know, I, I'm very supportive, of, and you've seen yourself and you referred to in the where we have made some changes very keen that we address work-life balance issues uh, but, but equally I have to be mindful that there is a business to be delivered um, and we need to be sure at all times that we have the right people in the right place at the right time because the implications for us of not having that uh, is already prisoners being locked in their cells uh, and that is something that, that you know, isn't acceptable to us um, and something that we have worked extremely hard to make sure is isn't the case so there, there is a balance here uh, and what I want to do is to appoint somebody relatively quickly me who will look at the ship patterns, who will look at the profiles, and will come up with something uh, that I think will be very acceptable to staff, but will equally allow us to deliver the important business that we're that we're tasked with delivering. In, in terms of your question about uh, the, the most the most difficult, again, in the executive plan, we're, we're trying here to flag up things where we think there are we can make progress with Berkeley. I think probably the most difficult one will be putting that service in place to support, to support staff. You I know, mean, the report talks about a bespoke service and it, it recognises that there are procurement issues and so forth. So I think that will that will take a little bit of time. I think that's probably uh, one of the more challenging ones but well, I think it, it is perhaps the most important to deliver um, and, and we, will, we will do everything we can to do that uh, as quickly as we can. I think some of the issues around HR that are being highlighted in relation to, for example, uh, you what know, health and processes there, I think there are, there are complexities around those things as well. Uh, but again, uh, you know, confident that we will find a way through uh, to, to deliver what Shalom what and Gillian are, are recommending. I mean I think the right thing is to keep Shalom and Gillian working with us. I think the report is excellent. I think it's evidence-based. You couldn't argue with it or anything in it. Uh, and I think having them um, as, as sort of all those mentors for me working through this will be will be really uh, will be really helpful and will get a beneficial outcome for, for all concerned.
9: I appreciate that, Chair, if you'll just allow kind of me one more quick question. And again, it's just following on from what Doug said. And maybe there does need to be, you know, a look at that. Oh, is there any perhaps the universal approach? And I understand what you're saying in terms of of the challenges around that. But we've just talked about the sick leave. Um, maybe there needs to be a more detailed piece of work around the sick leave. And, and is there some of that um, related to work life? balance and, and and all of those issues. So I, I think that some of that stuff needs to be looked at in the round where there, I understand that there are issues in terms of finance as well around staff, but where we're potentially maybe trying to save money is ending up costing us money in the second. So I suppose that's where we need to look at. And then just a comment more than a question in relation to the bespoke service, there are some really good examples of best practice, obviously in other um parts of the world and um, maybe we should be belonging to those, to, to those examples of best practice. Thank you. Yeah. I, mean, I, I absolutely
2: uh, agree and, and we, will, we will look to see you know, what, what is the best practice and what is the best uh, that, that we can deliver for, for our staff and, and I think you know, having Shobhan and Gillian alongside us will be will be helpful
9: in that because, you know, they, to be fair, have done some of that work in terms of moving
4: out there. So um, I think it will be very useful to us have them as a, as a point of
0: contact. Mm-hmm. No problem. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you very much, Holly. Okay, thank you, thank Linda. You. Uh, Sinead Bradley.
4: Thank you, chair, and
10: um, thank you to Ronnie and Brenton for um, the presentation. I have I'm um, not going over things that have already been raised, but I just wanted to go on record to to welcome the report and, and in particular like its proactive um, approach that it does it does attempt to to get in early before any problems arise and to, to sort of proactively engage. But and also I think the action plan does fairly reflect. Um, not just adopting of the recommendations, but a, a real, you know, dated attempt at trying to timeline this out, which is always very reassuring because I think sometimes as committee, they're the types of um, pieces of information we find ourselves trying to chase. So, in terms of them, um, and again, I would also be putting on record um, my thanks to Jillian and Siobhan and the fact that they will be. Um, retaining, you know, their, their handprint on this and following it as it monitors through. But in terms of them reporting back to the committee, because there are such succinct um, timelines, I just wonder what the mechanism there would be, Ronnie, Because it is it is very good. We have an opportunity to speak so directly to you on this, and will there be an opportunity for us to monitor progress as and when it it happens and is recorded? Thank you.
2: Um, I mean I, I would certainly welcome that. Um, I mean when, when we put together the action plan we wanted to make this ambitious and I think you know I wanted to demonstrate to the Minister and the Data committee that, that we are determined to drive forward with this, not, notwithstanding all the challenges we have at the moment around around COVID. Um, I, I will be reporting regularly to, to the Minister. Um it
3: is important matter for the for the committee how they they want me to report to, to, to you. But but it might be helpful um, if I came back to the committee,
2: you know, either late June or early September to give you an update in terms of the action plan and the work we, we have we have done uh, so that you can keep a you know keep a watching brief and a handle of the progress that's been made. And I'd be very really happy to come back at any time. But,
1: but, but it might be useful to do it around those milestones. Uh, I think
2: by the summer we will be able to demonstrate very clear and, and visible progress. Um, and I'd be happy to come back, as I said, any time to, to update the committee uh, on, on the work that we're doing.
10: Thank you, Ronnie. Thank you, Chair.
0: Okay, thank you. Um, Gemma Dolan. Christine, there's only one more after Gemma, if you want to let the department know. Um, If the the broadcasting can bring in Gemma Dolan for me, thank you. Okay, Gemma, that's you now. Thanks,
10: Chair. thanks very much. Thanks, Ronnie. I just have one question, and it's just, um, currently, as it stands, are there any training programmes
5: or personal development programmes for the staff from the prison service, or will this be a totally
11: new approach for the service and for the staff? But we, we do have our own uh,
2: training department at the Prison Service College um, mm-hmm. we, we, we have a lot of mandatory training that we have to do uh, and that's carried out by our, our, our excellent tutors at the, at the college We also do recruit training for new people coming in uh, and we do training for, for, different, for different grades of staff in, in different areas of it could be in mental health or in a range of, in a range of different things so what we're saying in the report is that the training that's recommended here, you know, some of that we're we're, we're doing, some of it we need to do, but, but we want to put that all together as a package uh, in terms of our
5: of our training or our training provision. Yeah, no, that's great. No, I am just wondering, you know, in case it was new, would it be a culture shock and would there be a negative kickback? But if it's if it's already
4: more or less in place, then it should be fine. That's it.
0: Well, That's all my questions, Chair. Thank you. I think staff will look at the trailing and I don't think there'll be any
5: resistance to that at all. Yeah, Thank you. Okay, thank you, Gemma. Uh, Emma Rogan. Thanks, Chair. Um, hi, Ronnie. and I hope you're well. In um, the yeah. review, Emma um, recommended recommend 2B It's interesting, it recommends that interviews are not solely based on competency and should be situational based as well, but test areas of resilience and attitude and self-care. Has there been any sort of thought given to how that would look or how that would work? You know, would it be along the lines of, I, I was thinking, it's very simplistic in my own head, but it would be if you apply for a job you get an aptitude test, would this be like an attitude to these, how you react to these stressful situations because, as you know, when we were in um, and um, a few months back, myself and Linda, we met with some of the staff and, and to be frank, to be we'll my eyes to the situations that they have to deal with, you know, it's not just a case of locking up prisoners and turning the key and that's it, you know, they have a current responsibility in there, they have to rehabilitate, they have to reintegrate the prisoners back into society, but like that, that
12: those types of staff that wouldn't happen? Um, yeah. but again, recently, we have ran promotion boards to senior officer, and as part of that, we brought in a situational judgment test as part of that process. So, we work with the company to develop that with our prison with, um, service colleagues, with a senior governor, and, and people from the prison officers' association also get part of that. So, we're starting to develop something in around it's a situational judgment, how people would react to certain situations in a prison setting. Because I think, um, as you say, it's very important to to just, what we could do is doing a half an hour interview on someone's very very difficult to get a flavour of, of the job? So what we've done over the last few months is a few of our unit managers have taken on a project to look at how we can better recruit and part of that is how we, we, we not just go to the interview but also how we Develop our website to have situations where people can get a feed for the job even before they apply as well. So, I suppose it's a a multi discipline approach to this, really, that um, we want to take forward.
5: That's great. So, that leads me on to my my second question. I suppose it's more a comment than it's about that. Um, The recruitment, you know, it's it's trying to uh, attract the people to the job, you know. Stereotypically, the people that I've seen on your in your in your prison in Magarey are not what I stereotypically w- would have thought a prison officer was. There was you know there was ranges of people of all different walks of life, but when you think of prison officer and if the job advertisement, it's how we attract those people from all sections of the community to, to think that actually that is a job role that I could do, and how do we attract those that are miss on on unrepresented within the service to that um, to that role? I mean I I don't
12: know I couldn't really work to be honest again and it's something we're actively looking at. I mean we've made made real progress in the last number of years women coming into the the service and you'll have probably seen that for yourself. uh, the number of women am I working in the service is is actually thirty or, or historically it was much lower than that, which is right, but there's, there's still progress has been made, and we're very focused on that. But, but I, I, mean, I agree with you uh, as, as well. Emma, uh, I mean, I've, I've been open with this committee in the past and said we do have a, an issue in, in attracting
3: uh, staff from right really across the community, uh, and we, for our part, are very keen to address that. Um, you know, we, we have our prisons unlocked
2: programme, for example, that we're very keen to take out to, to, to schools and universities and into the community. Now we're limited at the minute what we can do because of the because of the ongoing pandemic. But but we are very keen uh, to reach into all communities uh, to give a very clear understanding to the people right
3: across um, right across the country what the role of a prison officer is
2: and you know I, I think for far too long People in society have this view that prison officers simply swim keys and lock doors. Uh, and I think you, you have highlighted uh, very well for us that there is much more to that job. And I, and I do see it um,
6: as, as part of a, of a caring profession. Um, because yes, we do
2: have to hold people securely and safely uh, if they're sent to us by the courts. But, but there is a great opportunity in prisons to do so much more with people uh, around their rehabilitation and around seeking to reduce the likelihood of them reoffending when they leave. Uh, I think one of the we things we've been able to do in the past couple of years and Programme for Government has been, I think, a very good help to us on this is to refocus the service around what is our purpose and our purpose is about supporting and challenging people to change and it's about reducing the rate of re which is to the benefit of us, of us all right across society. And, and it's how we get that message I think, out in the communities to say, you know, you know, a career in the prison service is something that's very worthwhile and it's a job where you can come to, you can make a real difference. Because you're dealing with some of the most challenging people in society, but also some of the most vulnerable. Um, so, you know, I'm very keen to work with the committee, in, in, in looking really at ways as to how we can better reach out uh, into the community to, to
5: attract, to attract um, recruits
0: from right across. Thanks Sharon Any more questions, thank you. Okay, thank you Emma, um, okay Ronnie that, that concludes the session so can I thank you for your contributions to this. Obviously it will be a, an ongoing piece of work and I know individual members will No doubt to follow this up. Um, I would be keen that before certainly the summer recess that we could get um, a more formal update. Um, So if we were able to aim for before the end of June for even a written paper um, outlining how the, the action plans and recommendations are being taken forward and implemented, that would be helpful. Okay, well listen, we will we'll formally write to you anyway, so if members are content we will seek a follow up in terms of how the action plans being implemented and request that um, before the, the end of June then, before the summer recess would take place. Okay, well listen, thank you Ronnie, um, thank you. members, that, that moves us on if you are happy to move to the next item on the agenda then, in respect of the um, private injury discount issue, the Damages Return on Investment Bill and the uh, Request for Accelerated Passage. So, as agreed at last week's (coughs) meeting the Minister of Justice is attending with officials via the Starleaf facility and to outline her reasons for seeking Accelerated Passage for the Damages Bill. The relevant papers, members including a briefing paper setting out the reasons for Accelerated Passage are on pages 172 to 246 of your meeting pack and then there was a, a meeting that took place um yesterday with uh, foil um and, and there's a breakdown of what organizations that included uh, yesterday which some members were able to attend uh, a, a note of those key issues um is in the uh, tabled pack so there's also a timeline members that uh, has been prepared for you in turn uh, that covers all of the committee um consideration of this issue going right back to the uh, February of last year and uh, that's helpfully laid out by way of a summary um, for members benefit in terms of your consideration of these this matter as well. Um, page is it, Chair? Uh, there, There's a hard copy that was it? provided um, and it'll have been emailed Great. to the other members. Good job, thank you. Okay, so hopefully the Minister is available. Um, Okay, yes, Naomi's there, so thank you, Minister. So, um, if I can formally welcome Naomi Long, Minister of Justice, to the meeting, uh, Peter May, Permanent Secretary, and Laureen McAlpine, uh, the Deputy Director in the Civil Justice Policy Division. And the session will be recorded by Hansard and transcript published in due course. So, Minister, I'll hand over to you at this stage. Um, Thank you, um, Chair, very
13: much appreciate it. First of all, thank you for the opportunity to address the committee on why the damages return on investment bill needs accelerated passage. I'm particularly grateful to the committee for making the time, particularly at what is quite short notice. The reason we're seeking accelerated passage for this bill is to allow a stable discount rate to be set as soon as possible, as this is the only way to bring it about an end to the ongoing uncertainty and consequent delays the claimants are experiencing in the settlement of personal injury claims. Currently, the rate set under Wells versus Wells is 2.5%. The Department has concluded, however, that the Wells versus Wells methodology does not deliver 100% compensation and that legislation should be brought forward as quickly as possible to change the basis on which the rate is set. Both claimants and defendants have for some time been expecting the rates to change and almost certainly to reduce whether under Wells versus Wells or as the Department has now decided under a new legal framework. For claimants, even a small downward adjustment in the rate would be a substantial increase in their lump sum, and so it would not be in claimants' interests to offer um, pay, uh, to offer to set cases until the rate has been reduced. Until that happens, cases are being deferred and uh, creating a backlog um, in the courts. I want um, I want to be able um, to set a new rate in place as soon as possible. Um, to bring these delays to an end and enable claimants to have a full amount of compensation to which they're legally entitled. It's also not in the interest of defendants to have cases delayed I'm aware that parties are in some cases negotiating settlements outside the prescribed rate but that is not possible in all cases and many cases are just on hold. None of us wants that and it's especially not good for people who have suffered serious injury and want to receive their compensation so they can get on with their lives. This uncertainty will only end when a stable rate is set under a new legislative framework. It follows that we want that framework in place as soon as possible, hence this request for accelerated passage. If accelerated passage is granted, I would be hopeful that the bill would receive royal assent by summer and possibly even sooner depending on the assembly. Under the legislation the government actually would be required to set a new rate within 90 days and I'm hopeful that they will be able to do so more quickly. (coughs) So a new rate could be set by early autumn I cannot say that this would be possible outside an accelerated passage procedure. I'm sure no one will disagree with the policy of the bill which is to deliver the legal principle of 100% compensation better than is currently the case. In giving effect to that, the bill is largely technical in nature, prescribing the detail of how the Government actually will determine the rate. I do appreciate the technical or not, however, the Committee would prefer to scrutinise this bill as normal and normally we would welcome that input. In respect of this bill, however, the time taken for scrutiny will inevitably mean that it will take longer for the bill to be enacted and a new fixed rate under it. Such delay is not in the best interest of personal injury claimants. In terms of steps taken to minimise future use of accelerated procedure, I can assure the committee I have no plans to use the procedure again and would not expect particular circumstances of this bill to arise again. This is very much an exceptional request i'm happy to answer any questions members have about accelerated passage I, I think first lorraine is going to talk you through the detail of the bill itself
0: okay. thank you minister lorraine
11: um, thank you also chair for the opportunity to brief the committee on the content of the draft damages return on investment bill the bill will amend the damages act 1996 as applies to northern ireland to put in place a new statutory framework for setting the discount rate. The Minister has already referred to the legal principle of 100% compensation, meaning uh, that an award of damages for future financial losses should fully compensate the claimant for those losses, but no more and no less. The bill does not change this, um, and indeed, as the Minister has said, the, the overall purpose of the bill is to give better effect to that core principle. While the provision in the bill in particular in the schedule is quite technical, in summary it does three key things. Firstly, it provides for the task of reviewing and determining the discount rate to be carried out by the government factory, that is the clause one, and um, which provides for a new section to be inserted into the nineteen ninety six Act. Secondly, the bill sets out a new methodology for how the wages to be calculated based on the assumption that a claimant invests the damages award in a mixed portfolio of low-risk investments. This is to reflect reality of how a claimant would be advised to invest their lump sum and in contrast to the current framework which applying wells and Rails assumes a claimant invests only in very low-risk index-linked guilt. And thirdly, the bill establishes a time frame for regular reviews of the rate. The detail of the new methodology and the time frame for reviews are provided in a new schedule uh, to be inserted in the 1996 Act by clause two of the bill. Returning to the schedule, paragraphs one and two deal with the timing of the reviews. So the first review will begin as soon as the legislation is commenced and will be a review of the current rate of 2.5%. The next review will be in July 2024 to align with the reviews of the discount rate in Scotland and the rate will then be reviewed every five years. The department does have a power under Bill to require an earlier review but this would not affect the cycle of, of five yearly reviews. Under paragraph 3, government actuary is required to
3: complete
11: a review of the rate within 90 days. And the next paragraphs in the schedule set up the basis on which the government actuary is to determine the discount rate. Under paragraph 7, it is to reflect the rate of return on investment over a 43 year period in the notional portfolio. And the notional portfolio is set out in paragraph 12. Under paragraph 9, the rate is to be adjusted to take account of inflation. And paragraph 10 provides for two standard adjustments a a deduction of 0.75% to take account of taxation and the cost of investment uh, advice and management, and a deduction of 0.5% as a further margin. The fact that the investments assumed to be made by Cleveland are specified in the legislation is one of the reasons for adopting the Scottish model as the basis on which the rate is calculated is thereby clear and transparent.
3: The 43-year assumed investment period is a small difference to the Scottish framework which uses a period of 30
11: years. We have opted for the 43-year period on the basis of evidence that this reflects the average period over which personal injury claims invest. England Wales also used a 43-year period Earlier margin of 0.5% to which I referred is intended to protect against the risk of undercompensation the view of the risk inherent in any investment, however, carefully advised. The schedule gives the Department a number of powers to change by secondary legislation the parameters within which the Government Act
3: to set the rate. So, this includes in paragraph 8 uh, power to change
11: the assumed period of an investment of 43 years paragraph 11 the the power to change the amount of the standard adjustments and paragraph 15 convert first power to make changes to the notional portfolio. Any regulations made under these powers are subject to draft affirmative procedure so will be subject to scrutiny by the assembly. The provision in the bill therefore ensures that there is political accountability in relation to how the rate is set, while at the same time recognising that once in calculating the rate is prescribed in legislation, the task of applying it to determine the rate is really an actuarial exercise. Paragraphs towards to the end of the schedule include provision for the government actuary to send a report of this review to the department, that's paragraph 23, which then the department must lay for the assembly under paragraph 24, and under paragraph 25, the discount rate, as determined by the government actuary, will come into effect on the day after the report is laid. And finally, clauses three to six of the Bill were about matters, um, interpretation and commencement. We're happy to take any questions that the committee might have.
0: Okay, thank you. A um, couple of questions then, just for me. Um, in terms of the, the bill having been drafted um, based upon the Scottish model, if I can just ask what the timeline has been by by the department in respect of that, um, because in a letter dated the 10th of December, uh, the committee advised the department that the committee required further engagement with the department of key stakeholders as to whether or not the committee supported the Scottish model in relation to the new framework. and. Um, We've noted that in the letter the committee received on the 19th of January that the draft bill was only settled last week. So on that basis did the Department proceed with um, getting this bill drafted in terms of the legislation to implement the Permanent Secretary's preferred framework without first knowing whether the committee supported the Scottish model. Instructions
11: for the bill were sent um November. I think we saw a first draft, early December and a uh, final version thirteen of January.
0: Yes, but in terms of the question, Lorraine, um did the department get the go ahead with getting instructions despite this committee not having given an indication as to whether or not it supported the Scottish model? We
11: don't have that indication from the committee
0: executive that approved uh, instructions to draft okay so again just to answer that question did the department go to the executive to seek approval to legislate or to get a bill instructed to be legislated on the scottish model without having sought the view of this committee yes i did as minister okay okay um in terms of adopting the the model that scotland added The additional margin that ensures the applicant was not undercompensated and accepted that in doing so, there was a risk that it could result in overcompensation. (coughs) Just clarify for me, the department, um, and you've said it again today, the core objective here is 100% compensation, not anything less and not anything more. The Scottish model seems to build in through their deliberate policy decision of a a 0.5% margin to ensure that there's no risk of undercompensation at all so does the Scottish model present the risk of overcompensation and is that at odds with the Department of Justice's stated position that it only wants 100% compensation? Well it's a legal principle of 100% compensation but how you achieve
11: that is not an exact science I and mean, the same principle applies in materials and I believe in Ireland. Uh, and everybody is just trying to devise a methodology that best delivers that. We think our bill best delivers it. Scotland obviously thinks the same about theirs and England and Wales about theirs. We do also have the 0.5 uh, further margin um, but we also have provided for a slightly longer investment period than Scotland um, which might tend to uh, a higher return on investments
0: uh, do, does the England and Welsh model include the built-in not 0.5% to ensure there's no risk of under-compen- of undercompensation?
11: It's not in their statutory framework. It's left in discretion uh, of the Lord Chancellor. He's certain assumptions which she applies. This is why we think our bill, the Scottish bill, is, is clear and transparent because we know what the investments are supposed to be we know of the, the statutory adjustments are supposed to be uh, the department with the group of the assembly can change those assumptions and adjustments that it's clear on the basis of the legislation, whereas in England it's, it's more a matter of the Chancellor's discretion, who will be advised by a panel of experts. He did apply, uh, when they changed their rate in uh, 2019, he did apply a Open 5 deduction.
0: Um, in terms of the change of thirty years to forty-three years, are you able to provide an example as to what the differential that would mean by way of a, a payment? We didn't know that
11: until um, Gad ran the numbers. It will, it will become uh, apparent potentially when Gad at review when. Um, Run uh, the numbers against the notional portfolio of 30 years in the case of Scotland and against uh, an investment period of, of 43 years in the case of Northern Ireland. But maybe with rounding that, that it will actually make no difference because if it's less than a quarter percent, uh, it might not be that significant a difference anyway.
0: Okay, but the proposed model then isn't the Scottish framework in that respect because it's not 30 years, which is what it is in Scotland, it's 43 years.
11: Well, it's the Scottish framework in the sense that the Government actually makes the decision and is based on the notional portfolio and their prescribed deductions. And uh, it's entirely possible that going forward, either Scotland or Northern Ireland under their legislation, could change their respective portfolios or change the amount
0: of the deduction. Um, one of the issues that we had identified um, in England, Wales, Scotland the, are you able to clarify that the Treasury they uh, were granting access to the Treasury Reserve recognising the increased payments that would be made um, is that the case here that we would get access to the Treasury Reserve um, for the additional payments that would be required as a result of this change? I think that is a
11: question for Largely the Department of Health and the Department of Finance. The Department of Justice, and setting the rate, does not take into account um, the cost to defendants. Um, we recognise that potentially there is a cost, but it's for those departments to put uh, a figure on that. I think Department of Finance officials and Department of Health officials may be considering an approach to the Treasury. That is a matter for them, um, it is not a matter of the Department of Justice.
0: Um. But the Department of Justice and setting up this new framework and new rate is going to have a knock-on impact for what money is spent for medical negligence claims, for example, to the Department of Health. So it, that's right. Yeah. The, the principle is 100% compensation, uh, and that's the, the
11: criteria that we're following. Um,
0: Um, in terms of the removal of the ministerial accountability in the the Scottish framework, um, uh, in looking at the draft bill and the schedule, it makes reference that the department, by way of uh, regulation, could then change the the rate of discount. So are you going to be truly independent in the sense of having an expert panel that sets the rate, but retaining the power to provide a regulation that could change the uh, the 0.5%, for example.
11: We don't have an expert panel setting the right? rate. The portfolio is set in the legislation, so it's the government actuary um, that applies that. If it was considered that the portfolio is no longer suitable, well, that's something we would consider alongside advice from um, the government
0: actually. An impact assessment on the insurance industry in Northern Ireland, Um, has that been carried out in terms of these changes and what would be the implications for businesses and consumers?
11: No, it hasn't because again, the cost of dependence isn't uh, a consideration in setting the rate, it's about securing 100% compensation And it's not a matter of, well, 100% compensation is going to cost defendants too much, therefore we will give plaintiffs less than 100% compensation. The plaintiffs are entitled to what they're entitled to under the law, uh, which is 100% compensation. And this is just the best way we can devise to deliver that
0: okay i'm going to bring in other members at this point so uh, sinead bradley you've indicated to come in chair can you
10: hear me okay
0: yes we can thank you
10: thank you and thank you um for the information today. in terms of the issue of accelerated passage which is um, what we're considering here at the moment and um, i take it from your commentary that the executive and um, give the consent to go ahead with the drafting of the bill. Was the accelerated passage mentioned at executive level at that stage? Yes, Um, I raised the issue that I may seek accelerated passage for this,
13: it was highly likely that I would do so um, and I have also flagged to the executive that I will be discussing with the committee today so they are aware um, of the need for accelerated passage in this particular case.
10: Thank you, Minister. And, and I noticed then that um, you know, the, the urgency behind the accelerated passage, I think there was a difference of um maybe the best part of maybe six months if there wasn't accelerated passage in the timeline. So that obviously shows how you could potentially get this across the line faster and I see and I accept that. But I do wonder then, um, I'm trying to get a scale of the problem. So, for example, that would have weight if there were cases within, and it wouldn't have weight if there were zero cases, and I don't know how many cases there are um, against not just the private and the public sector, but also uh, I don't have any understanding or I've not seen any evidence of those who were outstanding cases Are are they being made aware that they can claim an interim payment? So while we tinker, I suppose, around the margins in terms of this percentage, the larger part of any payment that they are due could be settled while this piece of work is being carried out. Are you aware of any efforts or attempts made to make sure that claimants understand that? Well up to the first part of your question, it's impossible
13: to know exactly how many cases um, are awaiting settlement, how close a case might otherwise be settling, would really only be known by the individual parties to that claim. In correspondence in the Association of Personal Injury Lawyers in September, we were told that the majority of their settlements are on hold, so this is a significant issue, however we wouldn't have figures to put against that. Um, The second point um, with respect to the advice given to the payments, that isn't something over which the department has any influence whatsoever. Um, People in this situation would be seeking their own independent legal advice and it would be for um, their solicitor, for their legal representatives to give them advice as to whether they should take a partial settlement, whether they should um, take an advance payment or whether um, they should continue to hold out um, until the point where um, the rate has been changed. So, all of those would be very much um, subject to the legal advice given to individuals, tailored to their specific circumstances and need. It may not always um, be possible uh, to negotiate um, some kind of an advance payment if there's been no agreement as to um, the extent of any future payment, but that wouldn't be something over which the department would have any influence.
10: Okay, yeah, and I'm sure you'll appreciate um, in that. That then, in one sense, you know, we are being asked to forego a scrutiny and committee stage for something where there are alternatives to partially settling, and we don't know the scale of what the problem is, which is really difficult then to make a judgment on. And, and then, looking at um the Scottish model, which the framework which you know, which you essentially adopted, the the framework of the Scottish model, as far as I've been led to believe, quite explicitly and openly declares that it is there to ensure that the claimant will not be safeguarded and will not be undercompensated. And, and I mean, that's quite a strong political decision to take, but they've taken it and, and they're open about it. And we're, if we're adopting that model, I do have concerns then about us deviating from that in part, and I know the Chair did speak to this. So that deviation where we're taking the Scottish framework, but then we're adding in the, 40, uh, the extra years that have been adopted by the Welsh and English, so from 30 to 43 years. Now to my mind, I would have thought that the longer you invest a portfolio, be it notional or not, the more return you would would likely to see. So I'm wondering, are we taking one position and amplifying what could be um, a difference between the two models by extending the number of years on the Notional Portfolio? And while I'm mentioning that Notional Portfolio, I also just want to ask the question, who who actually set the first original Notional Portfolio? Well, Andy, on
13: the political question, um, with respect to the request for accelerated passage, the reason that we are asking for accelerated passage is because we know um, from the the claims um, that there are delays for people, we know um, that there are people who are seeking uh, to have their claims settled who don't feel that they can do so at the moment um, and that is backed up with the information the, that I recorded I um, earlier in the discussion. Um, It's also still remember a legal duty on us to ensure um, that every victim receives their 100% compensation, that's what we have to aim to achieve, that's what we're required to do and at the moment that's what we can't um, actually achieve. So it's important that we do this irrespective of how many people are waiting because we're not actually fulfilling our obligation in terms of delivering 100% compensation and we need to correct that as soon as is is possible. So there is an imperative to do this and to do it quickly. Um, With respect um, to the technical aspects of this, I'll I'll pass to Lorraine um, to to go into more detail, but bear in mind that whatever portfolio is set um, and whatever term of investment is set, that will then be assessed by the government. In terms of the outturn of that. So it isn't something um, that, if you like, that adjustment um, to either the length of investment or the portfolio uh, won't be accounted for in the work of the government actuary. But I'm happy to hand across to Lorraine for um, the detail on
11: that. On the 43 years, we have taken into account that that is, in reality, based on evidence from MOJ, from the average length of. Uh, personal entry payments and investment period, so that's evidence based. I, I don't know uh, where the 30 years came from in Scotland. In regard to the notional portfolio, we have consulted with Gahad the and they have indicated that it's still an appropriate portfolio. I can't honestly speak to where Scotland um, came up with the portfolio
10: in the first place, but I would expect it was after consultation of Gad, and Gad has certainly indicated to us that it's still currently appropriate. Okay, so, so so sorry, you are just mirroring exactly the Scottish portfolio, um, after okay, consultation. Okay, and how you consider then uh, during that that consideration that um the the extent of the years. So so without understanding why they've gone for thirty years, may it be that the thirty years, for want of a better word, was to tune the fact that they are leaning into being um unapologetically a more claimant-friendly bill, and that the thirty years may be some way of rectifying any or adjusting any overpayment that may happen. Should is that something we should be investigating? Because the forty three years might actually amplify um, any correction that was needed if that is the case, and I don't know that
11: it is. I think both England and Wales and Scotland and Northern Ireland are about 100% compensation. It is not about a claimant friendly bill or a defendant friendly bill. It is about how to we deliver 100% compensation. I and mean, as I've been practicing with 30 year, 43 year period with, with rounding might not actually make any difference um, in practice when add it comes to run the numbers. We went for 43 uh, as did England and Wales because there is there's an evidence basis for that.
8: Can I just add, um, and we might just get, make sure what I'm saying that say is correct, but my understanding is that in all of Scotland, England and Wales there is currently a half percent margin applied the difference is that in Scotland it is on the face of the legislation, whereas in England it is for the discretion of the Lord Chancellor, and if at some point the Lord Chancellor chose to change, that he would be able to do so uh, without recourse to the legislature again, whereas our proposal would require any change to that margin or to the national portfolio to come back in front of uh, the Assembly and to be debated and considered in, in that way. So. To some extent, our approach is a more transparent approach, but I don't think that the margin actually makes a difference in practical terms currently. Even though the two pieces of legislation say slightly different things.
10: Okay, I appreciate that, and I do appreciate that assurance because it did concern me that you know we were sticking to the script in large part for proposing to, and then deviating was something that could have effect and. Um, the overall, and yes, I think ultimately, whilst everybody is aiming at the 100%, that's why I was concerned that in that deviation, we may be doing something that would take us further from the 100%, which is everybody's target, you know, ultimately, from whatever is agreed or decided. But uh, yeah, I'm trying to weigh up, as you can appreciate, the accelerated passage piece is based on the need, the duty to ensure that the 100% can be achieved
0: as soon as possible, um, and that is a duty on the Julian Department and I do appreciate that. Thank you, thank you Chair. Just, just to clarify, um, whilst the Lord Chancellor had the discretion to use the 0.5, does the Scottish model not have two steps in terms of uh, adding to the percentage, so they have a 0.25 and then the 0.5? Is that where we get the is that where we get the difference between the the percentage in England and Wales compared to Scotland?
11: No, we have a, a 0.5% point five percent further margin and we've 075 for investment advice and, and management and that sort of thing. And in Scotland as well, and the Lord Chancellor applied uh, the same deductions, but he did so as a matter of discretion. Um, whereas Scottish legislation has it on the basis of the bill as we, and if we want to change it, then we would have to go uh,
0: to the Assembly to change those um, margins. So how, how do we account for the current different, difference in the rate between the Scottish model and the, uh, the English and Welsh?
11: Well, uh, there are a couple of reasons for it. One is that England and Wales fixed its rate at a slightly different time scotland so there were some market adjustments between the, the two time periods uh, also they used um, a slightly different portfolio i think that the portfolio that the lord chancellor relied on was maybe um, not identical to the uh, scottish portfolio and it was a third reason which currently escapes
0: yeah um it's just one Whenever we, we met with a group um, to discuss oh, that. Oh, yes,
11: sorry, the 30 year, yeah. 43 year period may have counted for a difference between the, the English and uh, the Scottish rates. So everybody's aiming for 100 per cent, but I mean, Scotland and England, we are, also are, are at different rates, and um, when the yeah, GAB runs the Northern Ireland figures, we may
0: very well be at uh, a different rate again uh, because the market will be different um, than when it was in England-Scotland, um uh, yeah. their rates. Yeah, because a number of us met with the representatives of the Forum of Insurance Lawyers and they gave us an example um, of an award um, and under the Scottish model um, they were indicating that that would equate to £10 million um, whereas under the England and Welsh model, it would be £8.5 million. Pounds. Um, so there's a differential there of £1.5 million pounds more in Scotland, but that was based on the Scottish 30 years. So if we were to go for 43 years, logic would seem to indicate that that would be a further differential um, and compared to the English rate. So if, if everybody is wanting to achieve 100% compensation, no more and no less. On that example that we were given, the difference is well over a million pounds and under the move to 43 years, which you're not able to quantify or provide an example, that could be even more. I
11: would caution against uh, attributing the difference between England and Wales solely to the difference between 30 and 43 year period. My impression is that it was really to do with mostly to do with the timing in which the English rate was set and the Scottish rates were set and there were also some slight differences in their portfolios Uh, and if there is a difference when the Northern Ireland rate is set it will will not be because of the 30 or 43 years it will be some difference because of that. The main difference will be because the markets will have shifted so significantly
3: from
0: when the English rates and the Scottish
9: rates were set. Okay, Linda Dillon. So, my turn. Um, thank you for your answer. And the top of what I was going well to ask is actually in the European Middle but to be fair, I suppose one of the main services for me, and it's probably more than an investor, rather than uh um brain, um is around the accountability the and that, that there is someone that's responsibility uh, and I understand um, um we've obviously got a m issue around that. But can I just check excuse my audience but in terms of the government actually who are that they, who who would they be accountable to? And then for me that, as I said, not having an administrative responsibility, I would, would be a bit of a concern around accountability and, and how we would ensure that there is accountability in there because as I've made this point before where, that the selected drafts are very accountable and people don't like what we're doing. They like, can just give us any time they want. And they have that opportunity every, every four to five years but obviously, I'm sorry, I'm not have all the rights to come, but, 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 but that may be so, but I think the kind of what they are in elective is good because we can be required like, to, yeah. to, to have that. So, so how do we ensure that they kind the of validate that they not have a non um, responsibility them. to this actually really? get a good vote?
13: Well,
3: to be absolutely clear, um, on that question, Linda, I concur with the parents. am um, about to clarify the popular conflict of interest for in my husband's membership of a medical defence
13: union. Accordingly, I asked the Parliament secretary to make the key policy decisions. The decision that the legal framework for sending the rates should change. and would be made by him. It is an entirely proper to be able to bring the bill that will implement that policy previously as normal. And so to question me around why that decision was taken, how it was taken, and so on, even though it was not being took the decision. Um, so it's not a ministerial accountability for the process, it's simply that the two decisions that were um, whether it could be perceived as pecuniary interest on my part would not be required for me personally um, to make those decisions. If um, further decisions arise during the past, and then I will obviously consider that it's necessary for me to. Decisions in the permanent and um, if for example uh, those relate to areas where they could be perceived to be in your interest, I ever again would not prevent any coming to the as chamber and undertaking my proper role and being allowed to know what you do that. If you look at the whole thing, it will happen, but when it's a chance to be filled. Sorry, I apologise. I'm sorry, I've had this proper motion on that. i going to tell you how I bring the question. I I, I actually accept the issues around the. the, the I have a on the bell. I was going to go to the second part of the question also with respect to the update for uh, the legislation in the longer term. First of Mm -hmm. of all, we're asking for uh, accelerated passage. Um, We are not suggesting that we will be taking this through. Um, without um, an adequate um, space between each individual stage. I mean, as you know, accelerated passage of the bill can be passed in 10 days. What we are proposing is that getting a new framework and stable discount rate in place is urgent, but I would still want sufficient time between stages to allow members the opportunity to digest the technical details of the bill and inform the debate on So that will still be possible under um, accelerated passage. Um, there will still be opportunities to properly debate and scrutinise the bill and table amendments at consideration stage. So again, it doesn't preclude that oversight. And furthermore, the content of the bill itself, as Laureen has explained, actually adds to the transparency and accountability. Because if we decide to make any adjustments or changes, um, either to the portfolio um, or to the rates, that will have to be brought back. To the assembly for further debate uh, by way of legislation. So I think that in many ways there is more oversight on this um, as a result of the model which has been chosen um, uh, than would normally be. The, the may be the case in the English and Welsh model, um, and also I don't think that the uh, accelerated passage in itself um, is de- denying the opportunity for scrutiny. Though it could obviously um, removes the committee scrutiny element. It certainly doesn't, for example, prevent scrutiny and indeed amendment and, and so on uh, when it comes to consideration and further consideration stage. Um, but just uh, I think the, the the key issue is that in the long term uh, the issue around the government actually uh, making changes um, is something um, that will that will have to be brought to the committee um, and to the Assembly if there were any changes going to be made. So in that respect you do have oversight of any changes that are proposed. Lorraine, um, do you want to maybe uh, answer the question just specifically on the Government Actuary um, and their departmental responsibilities?
11: The Government Actuary uh, is a non-ministerial department. It comes under the, the umbrella of the Treasury. Uh, and I think the, the Chief Government Actuary probably reports to the, the Permanent Secretary um, in the Treasury but it, but it is a non-ministerial department. Uh, and they have indicated that they are um, content and more than content to help the Northern Round executive in, in this legislation. Okay. Um
9: so my, my, my question was more about it in terms of the actual um set you know set going forward and, and the ministerial accountability around that rather than, than some of the other issues that, to be fair that the, the is,
13: but. Um, well, it won't necessarily be me, there will be minister either, into my advice. If you refuse, there may not be a conflict, in which case it would be for the minister to bring the bill forward. Um, but it will have to in the assembly because it won't be able to be done other than by legislation.
8: Okay, okay. I think part of the question was about whether the minister should have a role in actually setting the rates, was that if I understood correctly. Um, and I think that, that there are alternative options. The England and Welsh model provides for the Lord Chancellor to make the decision based on um, the work of a panel of experts. Um, I think our, our view and the reason that we've um, drafted the bill in the way we have is that um, it is not clear on what basis a, a political figure, should change uh, the, uh, the decision reached by the independent expert, in this case the government actuary if the government actuary decides that a certain level will deliver 100% uh, compensation uh, then uh, what would the basis be on which there would then be a political decision taken to change that so again in the purposes of transparency uh, so that all parties uh, to any court case would understand absolutely clearly how a decision was reached, in this case based purely, as I say, on that independent assessment, then we believe that is a more satisfactory approach than one that allows um, the Minister, it gives, it, gives, it gives accountability but it's not clear on what basis the Minister could then intervene to, to change that rate. Okay, I, I, accept, I accept
9: what you're saying, Peter, to a degree, I haven't had a great experience, I independent oversight on in the assembly. Uh, whenever we've had some occasions. <laughs> maybe that's what makes me a bit uh, nervous, but I don't know. Of course, the way this will work is that the light will be
8: set, and then the analysis, the way this will work is, as, as cases are settled, so, People will be able to judge, and if they believe there is a problem, then in exactly the way that you would expect, that would then come back to the department. The department could either choose to chain out a review, um, in other words, to have a review before the five year period if it was concerned, or if it was convinced there was a problem, it could look at either the notion portfolio if that seemed to be the cause of the problem, uh, or at, at the The half percent margin, if that appeared to be the cause of the problem, and bring proposals to the Assembly to make a change. So, in that way, there would be ministerial accountability for the system that is put in place. It's just the way in which the rate is set, and the fact that that then goes um, and really needs to be properly a matter for the courts to determine in terms of the cases that are before it. That's the bit that there
9: isn't a political role in, and I think that, if I may say so, I think that is the right way to look at it. Uh, uh, uh,
1: okay. Bad, okay, thank you. Thank you, Peter, um, and Master. Right, thank you, Linda. Paul, Frew. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your time and your, your uh, answers so far. Uh, on that last point, Peter, I suppose, between the actuary and versus the political decision of the rate, has that, and, and I get why that, that dilemma is there, that question is there, with regards to actuary or political decision, but has that been extended into the actual political processing of producing law? And is that one of the reasons why you're going for extended... uh, 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 Sorry, fast passage through the legislator? The only reason for accelerated
8: passage is to try to resolve the uncertainty that exists at the moment so that uh, those... Who are, um, in a of cases, on whichever side, have a solid basis on which to resolve them. Um, has explained that we are aware that there are a number of cases that we can't quantify them, uh, where there, there has, there is currently a delay, and that is undesirable. And I think the committee has drawn my doubts in previous engagements that they've had with us about about the bill.
1: So, so I get the urgency and the, the duty on you to produce something as quickly as possible, but that can't be so quickly as possible can mean many things with regards to a process that you're going through, and what you're doing is you're you're leaving out the scrutiny piece of a committee with regards to that quickly as possible, um, and I get the duty about doing it as quickly to get uh, you know to get people certainty. But with regards to the number, which you can't quantify, of cases going through, surely you... Can you not have it within your remit to get the quantum who have actually listed cases... ...so far? Well, the issue, Paul, with respect, isn't that you can't tell what stage cases are
13: at. So knowing that there are cases that are live, doesn't give you any indication of how close that case might otherwise be disettling that would only be known by the individual party so some of the cases that will be um, that will be in negotiation at the moment um, will not be ready to settle even were there to be um, a new rate set others may have agreed everything bar um, the, the settlement on the basis
5: that they don't want to agree at this stage without that in place. We would have
13: no insight into what stage those cases are at, nor would we be expected to, because it's entirely a private matter between the two parties. So we can provide the kind of information I think that you're seeking in terms of how many cases may be affected. In terms of speeding up the process, the only part of the process that we can really speed up um, in terms of delivery um, we are looking to speed up, and that is first of all um, passing through um, the assembly process, um, and we're looking to do that with pace, but not I think not cutting out all opportunity um, for scrutiny and engagement on this. I think that's important because I recognise the important role that the committee has in scrutinising this. But we're also looking, for example, at working with the government actually um, in advance so that we are able to deliver, um, hopefully, in less than ninety days, but a maximum of 90 days and the actual decision in terms of of the rate and to allow us then um, to be able to move to a stable position as quickly as possible so where we have been able to do things quickly that's what we're seeking to do and those are two areas at this stage where we can again, make savings in terms of time um, and without a huge loss in terms of scrutiny because as i say the minimum period i think is 10 days we're not aiming to go through in that 10-day period um because we recognise that many will want to reflect and may have um a wish um to bring issues forward um at consideration and further consideration stage we want to try to accommodate that, albeit um with accelerated passage.
1: So can I, so also,
13: so say, so just, I yeah. also say that the people aren't going to set their cases down for trial if there if there's this big understanding issue
3: about the statutory discount rate? So it's it's not just the
1: understanding what, what cases are listed, because you're not listed. So so given given the delays in our court system presently, would it not be unwise not to list as soon as possible in order to get to the other side of that court process more sufficiently and quicker? But so mo-
11: most of these cases are, are are going to be settled without being in court. Right. I think if you were a plaintiff you would be making case slowly, because you don't want to set your case or
1: have your case disposed of with the country itself under Wells and Wales. So so it's not a case then that that court processes or cases are delayed. It's it's the delay seems to be in moving them. Is that enlisting them, is that correct?
11: But no, it's, it's a matter not. between it's it's a matter between two private individuals. It's not like a criminal case
3: where you know a case is driven um, by the state, by the police, the prosecution. You, you've got
11: two private individuals, and how quickly or how slowly they move their case is more under their control. Now there is a case management of it and the the court would want to know why is this case progressing, but it's not the same as in a criminal case where the where the, the judge is going to um, want to drive the case on and that there's more state ownership of the progress of the case.
13: I think the key issue, Paul, um, in respect to your question is that the impact this has in terms of not um being in a position um to be able to meet the requirement of one hundred percent compensation um is that victims are not settling their cases um because they are fearful that if they do they will be undercompensated and these can be life changing sums of money, so it's understandable and entirely understandable and justifiable that they would be concerned about that. The only way we can move from that position to a more stable position where people can then progress their cases based on the case progression, normal um, the normal circumstance and not influenced by this is to get to a point where we have a stable way, which is recognised to deliver that 100% compensation and that's why it's so important that we get to that point quickly. So it's not really about the business of the courts as much as it is about delivering the compensation to those who have been affected um, and who are entitled to compensation and that's really where the delay lies rather than in the courts.
1: Minister, you say that you'll not use a 10-day period between stages. What is the sufficient time between stages then?
13: Well, it's not about saying what well, is sufficient time. I'm simply pointing out that the minimum time is 10 days. And uh, we would obviously want to make swift progress. I think it's important that we do. Um, but we would obviously anticipate there being a week, you know, a few weeks between each stage in order to give members the opportunity to engage properly with the bill and the scrutiny, both in um both at the uh, in the assembly chamber and the day if there are amendments that are to be brought at consideration or further consideration stage.
1: <laughs> so, so what you're saying is that you will want MLAs to scrutinise a bill without the support and the structure. Of, of the committee structure. And and if, this, if that is the case, is there not danger there, Minister, that MLAs may well come totally uninformed and may well move amendments that may in haste or by mistake be detrimental to your bill and to the outcome of the legislation, what you're trying to do? And what would your stance be then whenever you could stand up on the Assembly floor and say you're you, you are wrong to bring this amendment because you have not scrutinised it properly?
13: Well, I mean, the, the fundamental issue here is that for every piece of legislation, the committee plays a crucial role in scrutiny, but it is for every MLA before they vote and participate in the debates um, and in the votes to scrutinise that legislation. That is part of our role as members of the Assembly and we have a duty to do that. Um, I have faith that members of the Assembly will make the effort to do so if they're going to participate actively in those debates and particularly if they're going to bring forward any kind of changes or amendments And um, that they would um, engage with the Department about those and discuss those uh, with the Department in advance which is why I said we're not talking here um, about 10 days, we are talking about having uh, sufficient time between stages to give members adequate opportunity to, ty- to digest the technical detail of the bill and the form and um, the
1: debate on it. But just to be clear, that, that wouldn't actually be a formal committee fu- uh, function. Uh, the, the, the committee may well dip into aspects of this bill, but they wouldn't have a formal committee stage. So, That's so, so So the work that the committee could do as a whole would be quite limited at, in regards to that? Of course, and that, is, that is the downside of accelerated passage which is why in my opening remarks I said I would
13: only use it um, in what were extraordinary circumstances, that it's not something I anticipate having to use me in, in this mandate um, and it's not something, as you well know, that I would be um, keen on using um, in other circumstances were it not as urgent as this is. Um, I think it is clear um, the degree to which I value the committee input into legislation um, given that, for example, um, when it came to the domestic Abuse um, bill, that we didn't piggyback that on the Westminster legislation in order to ensure the local MLAs and the committee had the opportunity to help shape that bill, and I think it is better for um the, for the work that was put in, so this wouldn't be something that I would see as a routine matter. I recognise. Um, the importance of committee scrutiny. As someone who sat on committees for a long period of time um, I I value the work that committees do and I think it's important. It is though an issue about urgency and the accelerated procedure mechanism is there for circumstances such as this. Um, This is exactly what it was designed for, for bills that are highly technical in nature that are unlikely um, to generate um, a lot of amendments and changes because of their technical nature. Um, and that are required to be delivered with um, a degree of urgency that perhaps doesn't apply other legislation. So, in that sense, it fits the bill for um, going through under accelerated passage, um, but it doesn't in any shape or form create a precedent or undermine the value of the work that the committee do on other pieces of legislation. And indeed, you have two substantive um, pieces of legislation with you at the moment, and uh, looking forward to engaging you in the H&E and future meetings over those.
1: Final question, Mr. Just on the court processes, do you have a percentage of 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 rate uh, or speed of the court process currently compared to what it was this time last year? Is it running at fifty percent, thirty percent capacity? Well, in terms of these would be um, civil court issues. In terms of criminal courts, um, we've actually been running above one
13: hundred percent. Um, over the last number of months, in terms of the, the work to try to clear the backlog, so <coughs> pardon me, um, we've been working very hard to do that, given the current pandemic and the impact that that's been having in terms of pressures on people. Um, we have had to step that down slightly in order to allow all sections of the system and um, to continue to fully function. Um, and not um lose any of the detailed consideration given to victims and their support um, and so on around that but we're still functioning at um, over 100 percent of the capacity and um, in terms of cases going through in order that we not only deal with new cases but we
1: also tackle the backlog that was created when the courts were shut for a period of time and whilst we cover proof them um, for future for future uh, work and in civil court then
5: in civil court i don't have those figures because um, I.
13: Of half the others, um, from recall because we were actually dealing with um, the criminal justice board last week, so I have those figures to hand, um, but I can certainly give you of civil. But as I say, in this case, the issue isn't so much um driven by court capacity; it's driven um entirely by the willingness um of the two parties and um, reach a settlement.
1: Okay. Thank you. Thank you, chair. Um, Just a quick
0: query and then I'll bring in Rachel Woods. Um, Is there any risk of the Executive, the Assembly going down a different route around the Scottish model and then the Treasury saying that um, you you pick up the tab, you've deviated from the English and Welsh model?
13: Can answer that. Um, no, I don't believe so. Um, because Scotland has been able to introduce um, their model, so it's one of a range of options. And we're not deviating from the principle, which is to deliver one hundred percent compensation. And we're still doing that within the within the reasonableness confines um, of what's required of us. So I don't anticipate that being an issue.
1: Rachel Wood.
4: Hi Chair sorry, sorry, can you hear me okay? Yes, we
0: can now, yeah. Perfect, thank you.
4: Um Minister and um, Peter and Marie, thank you very much um for coming here today. I really appreciate it. One of my questions was about the Treasury and that has gonna But just with regard to the letter dated nineteenth of January, um it's clear that the assessment is for the bill to become law and a new rate to be set before the assembly term, and that's regardless of whether accelerated passage is granted. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So just, just with the information that we have in the letter, the difference between accelerated passage and normal procedure for the bill will be set around autumn 2021 or early 2022. Is that you We
8: have to determine how quickly the assembly will conclude the process uh, in the event that there is a committee stage. So we have to make a, a projection as to how long that would be. We can say with some certainty that the legislation would be passed before the summer under accelerated passage, and then in less than 90 days after that, we would be able to proceed. So no later than the early autumn, we would have a that rate in place. It's much harder for us to determine at what point the legislation would actually pass uh, were the not the accelerated passage, and then to add on the extra time for the uh, actuary after that.
4: That'd be all right. It, it sounded like to be before early twenty twenty two. It could be a bit later than that. Okay, thank you. Um, possible the bill to go through normal procedure. I have a committee stage much quicker than it's been suggested, and for the rate to be set around on this year without accelerated passage. I don't believe it's possible to have a committee stage
13: and meet the kind of timeframes. That we will be talking about with accelerated passage, you no, know, which is why we're seeking um, accelerated passage, um, and I think that's one of the reasons that we have we have brought this
4: um, at request um, to the committee. Um, so I, I don't think it is possible um, to do this quickly with the committee stage, um, just given uh, the structures that are around that. Okay. Just with regard um to the the technical nature it was referred to earlier on, it's highly technical um, and this what um accelerated passage could be used for if it was urgency. It's just we're obviously creating a new legislative framework for setting rates and it's very important and complex exercise and I don't even claim to know all of the details in this um. But it is we're talking about a legal framework that will shape a process and future procedure, and it's not simply about calculation or a formula to produce numbers. Um, and that is you know this loop legislation will have lasting effects. And that is I well appreciate that there is some you know, fine detail in this. The, the Scottish Parliament introduced their damages bill on the first of June 2010 and it was a scrutinizing the finance committee and then subordinate the legislation committee and then passed first stage six months later in December and then at the second stage of the bill the Scottish justice committee considered it 17 amendments um, and it was referred back to again and many of these amendments were made and the bill hit final stage in March 2011 so nine months after it was introduced which is think the Scottish example is important because it showed that the devolved legislature had a big role in refining and improving the legal framework as the bill went through, went through normal stages. So I suppose my question would be just, I know it is, it is refined and it's detailed and it's complex, but do you think that opportunities to refine or improve the bill could be lost as a result of not having the committee stage? Well I think there are two elements to that Rachel. I think firstly,
13: um, the Scottish model has been tested through the Scottish Assembly and I not suggested that 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 in any way supplants the right of the Northern Ireland Assembly to look at it its own business. Um, there has been a degree of testing and stress testing around this. You also mentioned the dates, and you'll be conscious that we're now um, a long way beyond um, those dates where with, with this legislation was brought through in Scotland. Um, the situation has been corrected in England and Wales, um, following Wales first Wales, um, and we are still behind. So we come from a position we're already behind, time-wise. Um, i under significant pressure to address this, which is one of the reasons why um, we're keen um, to move forward as quickly as we can um, in order to write this position um, to what our duty is. So, I mean, will there be um, opportunity for uh, people to bring amendments and to be able to seek out the technical detail? Well, as I said in answer to previous questions, I still still think that opportunity is available. um, And there's certainly nothing to stop members doing that. However, again, given the highly technical nature of it, um, I think there has to be some um, restraint shown in terms of Um, the degree to which people would wish to seek to amend um, legislation of this nature going through, given that it is carefully balanced um, and that professional advice is being sought with respect to the content, but there will still be that opportunity that will not be removed and I have already said that I would expect there would be sufficient time between each stage, albeit through accelerated passage, um, for members to consider they wish to bring amendments um, or make recommendations for change to the bill members uh, of the committee and other members of the assembly um, who have issues or queries or indeed um,
4: suggestions for change um, during that process. Thank you Minister, thank
10: you
0: Chair. Right, thanks Rachel. Sinead Bradley.
10: Thank you Chair, just one quick point, um, just as I'm listening to the presentation and the answer here and I genuinely appreciate it, but in terms of um, the, you know, being able to fully understand what it is that's being proposed. And it has been said that we don't know a lot of this until the numbers run through the system. And I wonder if the department has considered um, putting their bill as proposed in front of the government actuary and saying, you know, as much as we already have established a notional portfolio, to run through the system a notional settlement amount and be able to make a comparison um, to how that final figure would land in the start model as opposed to the tweaked or changed proposed model for Northern Ireland? We did have
11: some discussion um, about uh, that but I think they were reluctant to run um, the, the, the portfolio uh, until the actual time for running it because it is so um, market dependent. So, even if, if we, they gave us a number um, this week, by the time it was enacted, it, it could be a different number. So, there's a question of, you know, if they did that, what would we use that information for? We know when it was run in Scotland, uh, 2019, it, was, it brought out 0.75%, um, but the, the market has changed since. so. None. Um, none of us are
10: any experts, but we could and um, it would be a higher rate than that. Sorry, Marie. I was thinking more from a settlement perspective. You know, we've taken largely the Scottish model, but we've adapted it in a way that we have extended the number of years for the investment. So I'm saying about you know, if I have a settlement breach today, and then I use the you know the discount rate, what would my actual settlement look like? based on our model or proposed model as opposed to the Scottish model. So even though you know they're both at a point in time. So even though next week it may look different if they both are run through in tandem at a point in time, it allows me as MA to know what the differential is. I'm agreeing to or not agreeing to thank you.
11: Okay, yes, and I understand now if, you, if we just ran the Scottish model now against 30 years or against 43 years, would it make any difference or, or yeah, um, we'd
5: say that the government actually could give us an indication, on that, but actually asking them to, to undertake that
10: exercise could take several weeks. Thank you, I appreciate that, but I do think it would be more doing to bring some clarity to it, you know, because it is complex and you know run through so i appreciate it and give that realistic
0: outcome what we're comparing thank you Jeff. okay thank you minister you'd indicated that your know, accelerated passage this fitted the, the fitted fitted the criteria because it's technical in nature maybe i'm misquoting you on that. but who who sets the criteria for what what fits the bill for accelerated passage is there any- well i mean I think it is
13: designed for those bills which are less likely uh, to require significant change and less likely to be subject to significant change on their way through. I think it's also for matters that are of a highly urgent nature um, and for that reason it fulfills, if you like, those criteria. It's not set down in law, it's simply a common sense assessment of the purpose. Um, of um, accelerated passage because obviously in the vast majority of cases as Ministers we would prefer that these things went through the normal legislative process but the accelerated passage route is offered um, as an option um, for the Assembly and Ministers to consider because there will be circumstances um, in which there is an urgency to the legislation that needs to be passed, this is such um, a circumstance um, where we are both behind the curve, <coughs> pardon me, um, in terms of the situation in the UK, but also um, where we have a, a desire um, and a duty um, to ensure that people um, are compensated at 100% um, and that we, can, we need to reach that point as rapidly as possible. So in that sense, I think it is a good fit for, for reasons of accelerated passage. And as i said, it's not something that for me, um, would be a routine matter that I would want to see other issues passed by accelerated
0: passage, but I do you think this is an exceptional case? Yeah, I suppose I, I'm just trying to find out where, where the executive policy stipulates the criteria for accelerated passage and if that includes something which is technical um, but hasn't actually had any indication from the scrutiny committee that it actually supports the policy position. Um, it, it doesn't strike me as neatly fitting into the accelerated passage in my opinion but that's where it comes into a subjective one and i suppose what i'm trying to ask is this your subjective criteria for yes, it, is it, it is so it's it not it's not an executive position then no i
13: haven't said that it was either
0: okay but you talked about colleagues in the plural it wasn't singular sorry you talked you referenced colleagues as in ministerial colleagues in the plural it wasn't a singular reference No, with respect to that issue, I don't believe, uh, Chairman. Okay. So just to summarise, I suppose, some of the key questions that I I would like to have had answered to justify accelerated passage. One, I still don't know how many cases are being delayed, but we do know, I know of some that are, but we, we don't know what that is. We don't know the financial impact on what the executive will be. Um, We don't know if the Executive will have access to Treasury reserves, but we do know that this committee raised it with the Finance Minister and has subsequently now engaged with the Treasury um, to, to indicate that they would want to have access, but we don't know a response to that. We don't know the financial impact of moving from 30 years to 43 years, which deviates from the Scottish model. We don't know the impact on the insurance industry, businesses and consumers. You know, and, and for example, should the market be reduced, insurance premiums increased, then you could have reduced cover or no cover at all to claim against for injury, and yet you want accelerated passage?
13: Yes, because, Mr Chairman, Mr. absolutely, because none of those are considerations that we can legally take into account in setting the rate. Our duty is singular, and it is that we have to provide 100% compensation to victims. All of the other matters which you have raised, whilst they may be of wider interest, are not allowed to influence the decision we take um, around setting this rate. And so we cannot, and should not, and must not, and actually if the committee are to be involved in scrutiny of this, they must not either be veering into issues around sustainability of the insurance industry, the impact on the executives, finances, or any of those other issues. Those are matters that are solely matters for others. Um, to respond to. Our responsibility, our sole responsibility in this bill is to ensure that we achieve the objective of 100% compensation. Nothing else can influence our decision making. So it not that there has to be a lack of attention or awareness um, of the challenges um, that setting a rate um, might, it, it might have on other parts of the executive um, or indeed um, on other industries. However, it isn't something that we can take into account. So we may be aware of it as an issue, but we cannot take into account, and would be appropriate, for us to
0: do so. Yes, but in this discussion, we've already identified that the English and Welsh model, at its core, is about 100% compensation, no more, no less. As in Scotland, however, that does produce different results. So, So, has the Executive and the Finance Minister, the Health Minister, all considered, debated, Um, the framework which you have now said is a purely isolationist position that your department is taking and not taking into consideration the impact on the Department of Finance or the Department of Health for example have those ministers fully engaged in this and considered the outworkings of it for them or is the executive just operating now in silos again well I mean again Mr
13: Chairman I think you misrepresent Entirely. This is not a matter of us operating in silos or the Department of Justice taking an isolationist position. This is about the legal duty on the Department of Justice, which is to ensure 100% compensation, and we are precluded from considering all of those other issues. Were we to be lobbied uh, by any other minister um, in respect of the cost of the executive or anything else? and were we to allow such considerations to influence our decision, we would be acting outside of our responsibility and our duty um, to which we are legally obliged to stick. So it's not about silos, it's not about people not being aware of the issues. Um, I have raised the issue of personal injury discipline, rate executive, other ministers have had the opportunity to discuss the impact that it may have on them, um, but they fully understand and recognise that that is not a conversation to which I can be party, nor is it a conversation which can influence any of the decision making, in respect of setting the rate. And it would be wrong to categorise that as a decision of the department, it is simply our our legally
0: bound duty. And in the meantime, to deal with the urgency of this, um, the current law allows your permanent secretary to strike an interim rate? Yes, but that doesn't uh, where we have settled position. In your opinion. So, for example, where we set an interim rate at this point, it would still have to be based on Wales versus Wales.
13: Um, were we to do so, we know that that would not achieve um, the objective of 100% compensation, that it could lead to overcompensation, and the result of that would not be to address the issue of claims actually being able to be settled, but would simply lead to our reversal where it, were, it was defendants um, who did not wish to settle the claims because of fear that they would be overcompensating. They would also know that it is our intention, um, as it is right across the rest of the UK, for us to come into line and change um, the, the mechanism for setting the legal framework and the mechanism for setting the rate um, in the future. And so they would know it is as a settled position. And so they would then des- decide, as indeed, um, victims have decided that it would not be in their interest to settle until that settled position has been, um, uh, has been reached. Which is why it is so important um, that we make these changes now and that we move forward
0: um, as quickly as possible. And that is the only reason why we are seeking accelerated passage in this particular case. Okay, is there any other members want to speak? If everyone else is content, then in terms of their queries. Minister, can I thank you and um, Peter and Lorraine in terms of your contribution. I've noted that despite recusing yourself, you spoke extensively and the Secretary of State, or the, the permanent Secretary, hardly spoke at all, despite him being now legally responsible for this. But however, I'll, I'll just note that well, for Mr. the record. Uh, Mr Chairman, this is an important distinction I set it out clearly um, in answer to the Vice
13: Chairman's question. I have not recused myself from this entire subject matter. I am still fully across the detail of what is taking place. I will still be the person who will take the bill through the assembly processes. So I have not recused myself in that sense. Where I have recused and delegated um, decision making is around two very key decisions, um, and they are key, but they're two decisions that do have a perceived um, pecuniary interest um, on my part and therefore it would not be appropriate for me um, to be involved in those decisions, and that is um, with respect to the setting of any interim rate um, and with respect to the actual rate itself um, and with respect to choosing um, the the formal legal structures that will be used um, to achieve the rate because were I to be involved in that there could be a perceived pecuniary interest um, and it would not be appropriate but with respect to the rest of this and in particular um, the urgency of delivering 100% compensation there's no peculiar interest, and there's no conflict of interest, and there's no problem with me speaking on that matter.
0: In your opinion, so thank you very much, Minister, and Peter and Lorraine, your time's been appreciated with the committee. Okay, members. Um, so, in terms of uh, consideration of this issue, obviously, I'm keen to hear from members in respect of this, um, as to, to what you wish to do. does there any members have a view then in terms of the accelerated passage request
1: no (laughs) chair Chair, if i could come in there whilst uh, we have that vacuum of silence which is sometimes welcome Uh, can i just say i'm still deeply nervous about the committee giving a view on accelerated passage Uh, i think that our job is to scrutinize legislation um, the Assembly can do what it wants, the Assembly can do what it sees fit. This committee is here to scrutinise legislation that is brought forward by the relevant department, which is the Department of Justice. And I think I would be neglecting my duty if I wasn't able to uh, scrutinise this with all the support mechanism that is that sits around us as a committee. Uh, and that's my stance. Okay. Thank you, Paul.
0: Sinead Bradley.
10: Thank you, Chair. Sure. Sure, Chair did find it particularly helpful, I have to say, having that session with the department and um, did focus um, you know, some perspective I suppose from there. you know view that they do have a duty to to act on this and I've no doubt um accelerated passage is not something that politically I would ever encourage or, or reach to. It's a very, very reluctant last too. And I do wonder, um, and I genuinely would have concerns about the timeline outside of an accelerated passage equally because I do think can it be achieved and would it be achieved? And um, because if it is technical in nature and we start drilling down into that, it could take time. And the more I look into this and research into it, there's absolutely no exact science around this, you know, there's not. But I do think we need to have clarity on what exactly it is we're being asked to support in the form of any bill. But I'm not sure and I'm not even sure procedurally whether a committee view or you know, the minister would go full to take a committee view on accelerating the passage, passage to the executive office. And I'm not sure is that is that the normal process that would be used? Would it be that a minister would try to carry that into an executive office to
0: Indicating away whether it was support for it or not. Well, I'll get I'll get Christine just to speak about the, that procedure in a moment. But you do raise a, a valid point, and one one which the official committee position so far has been unable to actually indicate whether or not it supported the Scottish model. And um, despite the engagement with the department, um, uh, and the committee hasn't been able to reach a view. Obviously, the minister confirmed that she took the decision to press ahead. And without having a committee position on this um, to get executive approval, to uh, have instructions for the legislation to be drafted upon a minority position of the consultees, which was the Scottish model. That's a decision that she has taken. Um, so uh, in that respect, you know, people are being asked to indicate their view on granting accelerated passage upon a bill, which is predicated upon a policy that we haven't actually reached a view on. Um, And therein lies the difficulty because um, members would need to consider that if you don't support accelerated passage, do you actually still support the Bill coming through the normal uh, scrutiny processes of the Assembly? And I don't think the Committee has still reached a position as to whether or not it believes that the, the framework identified by the Department is the best way to go. But, Christine, do you want to just... Do you know the the procedures in terms of does the minister require executive approval for accelerated passage or does she just introduce the bill and then ultimately my understanding is it's the assembly that has to vote there would be a motion seeking accelerated passage
14: yes um, i'll be honest with you i don't know the executive process but i do know that the minister has to seek executive approval to introduce the bill so i would assume that they would consider the accelerated passage request at the same time. Um, I'm not sure if the Executive indicated they weren't content with accelerated passage. I I honestly don't know that, Sinead, because we don't know how the Executive works um, and their things. But the Minister, in relation to the Assembly, um, has done what she's required. She has to come to the relevant statutory committee before she introduces the bill um, to put her case. And then, after introduction of the bill before second stage, she has to put down a motion um, to the Assembly seeking accelerated passage, and that is voted on in the Assembly. Um, And depending on the outcome of that vote, um, sets how the bill then proceeds through the Assembly.
0: Okay. I'm not sure she made a few years. Thanks to for yeah.
3: that. Because, because I do think, you know, the Minister
10: and the Department's officials did make a really good point when they said about the duty on them. And we naturally do and um, you know we look at the stakeholders and we look at all the ripple effects of this. But I suppose if we're pure about it in terms of a justice committee and we recognise there is a duty on the department to do this. Um, we should be measuring it in that scale and perhaps not allowing ourselves to be overly distracted um, by those considerations outside of it. However, that said, it's, it's still the, the proposal that's on the table that I don't fully understand. And I think the details that, um, like, for example, what I requested from Lorraine and, you know, maybe getting the actuaries department to run it through, because only then can we actually compare it to what's being used elsewhere to see are we achieving the objective, which is to reach one hundred percent compensation, and I know that's getting into the detail of the bill as opposed to the, the accelerated passage for the bill, but the two are so connected it's hard to separate them at this point.
0: They are. I would, I I concur with that. Um, you know I I would like to. <laughs> I would like to find out what this legal duty is that the department referenced because um, again it seems subjective by and in, in the same context that the minister has decided what criteria should be used to justify accelerated passage um, there is a duty on the department to strike a rate and there's been an interim rate proposed which the permanent secretary could strike and that would um in terms of the current urgency of cases may well alleviate that Um, that that's the current legal duty placed upon the department which is to deal with a framework under wales v wales and i acknowledge that that's not the perfect framework but my understanding is that that is the current legal duty applicable to the department um, and that's the one that they're operating in which currently they are not taking forward hence the legal challenges that are now proceeding through the courts in respect of that but I know the Minister doesn't want to take into account all of the other consequences of this. Uh, uh, That's not a view that I take. And when I asked, and members have asked questions around the financial impact of all of this on a whole range of areas, the move from 30 years to 43 years, we're not getting the information. uh, And uh, I, I don't see how I could support accelerated passage. Um, in terms of what could be the potential outworkings, very significant financial outworkings um, for the executive in respect of that issue. Um, And we are deviating from the Scottish model by moving from 30 to 43 years. So this is not a copy, cut and paste in respect of that. I do share some of the concerns Linda articulated around um, not having a form of ministerial accountability in terms of striking the rate because... Um, I I always feel that it is is better to have that level of accountability um, in in a process. So I'm not in a position to say that I support the Scottish model, but I'm definitely not in a position to be indicating my support for accelerated passage. Any other members want to indicate, let me just, sorry, Linda Dillon. I, I don't have a hand raising function for some reason I'm
9: on my service, okay. so I'm, I'm, I'm waving at Jim Mast and his trying to get in. So, just as, I, I think the Minister gave me um, an answer to a question I wasn't asking my question, wasn't around, around her accusing herself at all. It was, it was actually about the bill and then how we go forward in terms of ministerial responsibility and, and accountability around this. So I'm still not 100% sure, you know, Peter did come in on that and, and give some kind of reassurances on it. I would like to dig deeper into it. Um, and that makes me a bit nervous about the accelerated passage because how do we dig, dig deeper into things if we don't have the, the opportunity, to scrutinise. Um, that for me is, is still the real issue. I just quickly on the question, question around the executive responsibility. I can't say hundred percent, but I my understanding is that the executive don't agree or disagree to the actual accelerated passage, but the same in the same way as they would accelerate or would agree to the the bill being brought for the assembly they would agree to whether the Minister can request accelerated Passage, but I'm not 100% certain on that, sure. that's probably something we want to find out. And just the last thing on, on the issue you've just raised, to be fair the Department of Justice, I think they're right, they have to set this in terms of keeping to that very narrow remit of ensuring that claimants get 100% compensation but yes, as a committee, maybe we do have
0: to give consideration to other things. So, is there value in us writing to the the finance minister on this issue and getting a view? Yep, I've no problem in doing that. Um, Shanid, your hand is up. I just say, is that to come back in? Yeah. No, no, that's I, I, no. You're okay. No <laughs> <laughs> you're okay. Um, Okay, well in terms of my party's position I think I've outlined that we're not in a position as members of this committee to be indicating our support or otherwise for the the Scottish model because we have sought through the committee to get more information and the timeline that's been provided to members indicates how the committee has raised these issues, formally expressed a, a view Um, That we weren't in a position to to indicate our support for um, the the, the Scottish proposals in that respect, Um, and therefore, in terms of accelerated passage, how could we support accelerated passage without without having agreed yet to the actual Scottish policy framework? So that's the position that um, I and my two colleagues will be taking in terms of the uh, if the committee is wanting to express a view, ultimately. It's not this committee that votes on whether or not accelerated passage is granted it's the assembly so if members don't want to express a committee view and leave it up to the minister the executive and then a subsequent vote in the assembly then that's fine the 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 committee can do that Um, but for transparency purposes i'm indicating very clearly the position that we'll be taking in respect of that as we go forward i'm happy for a committee position to be relayed if it's if it's something similar to to that or if there's other broader points that we need to be considered.
10: Sure, can I just add to that at this moment in time that when I look at what's in front of us, I wouldn't on behalf of the SDLP go on record to say that accelerating the passage isn't the right thing to do. It may very well turn out that it is, but I have not been informed sufficiently to make that judgment call today.
0: Okay. Thank you, Sinead. I'm not sure if um, Linda and R- Rachel want to comment any further in respect of that.
4: Chair, no, I think you um, know my feelings on accelerated passage regardless of what committee it is or what piece of legislation it is. Um, I just I don't I don't feel as like if I have enough information to make a decision and the um, and the particulars of the bill, Um, so I I, I can't at the moment support um, accelerated passage given if there is going to be a rate set by accelerated passes by autumn but potentially um, could be done by the normal route by early 2021 and I'm happy to facilitate that as much as I can Um, in terms of offering scrutiny. I would rather have the committee stage if possible.
0: Yeah, okay, and Linda, do you want to come back in any further in terms of a position on the the substance of the bill and the request for accelerated passage?
9: I suppose just to say, Chair, for, the, for the reasons that have I would, I would be nervous about the route of accelerated passage. I um, mm-hmm. But I'm not going to take a party position, you're your right the the stand, we will have the opportunity to say, we will say well in advance of that, but I certainly wouldn't be um, at this stage, I that we have the kind of information that we need to be able to say that this is something that we would be very confident that Accelerated Passage is the right, right route to go. So at this moment, mountain time, um, I'm not going to declare an absolute party position on it, but Accelerated passage is not something that I would be comfortable with because I just don't feel I have the information. Um, if I, as a as political lead don't have the information, I, I certainly would be confident that anybody else in the, in the party or the assembly would have enough information on to make a decision around
1: that. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Well, yeah, just a, a very quick one. Something that struck me is that if, if you do away with the committee stage, it's gone. But you can have a committee stage that's both agile and and suited with regards to timing of the actual bill in front of you. So, if there's a bill with 300 clauses and a bill with five clauses, there's going to be a difference there with regards to your work and probably even the time. Now, if you find you're getting into that bill and there's something else you need to know, well, then that's a necessity. So, that might well extend time, but there's no reason why we couldn't give as a committee the commitment to work through this as diligently and as quickly as possible. Uh, what we don't know is what we don't know at the present time. And we all have answer- We all have questions and we haven't got the answers. That's what we don't have. But what we do have is the ability to work on this diligently and quickly. I'll leave it at that. Chief.
0: OK, well, if members are content, what we'll do is um, we, we can um, provide a summary of members' general commentary around their... Their views on this, um, recognising that ultimately that's a decision for the assembly to to reach in terms of the vote. But um, you know the committee can reflect uh, the the general views that have been expressed by individual members um, during this session, um, as opposed to an explicit committee position, um, and that's something then that the minister can take into account. Is that is that a way forward for folks? Yep, right. <clears throat> okay. Um, well, then we will we will write to the minister then, um, in terms of that, uh, outlining what members have indicated, um, and we'll copy in um, the executive ministers because obviously this is going to go to the other executive ministers um, in terms of some of their deliberations uh, as well, and I think it's helpful for them to be aware of some of the considerations that the committee has provided, okay let us move on, okay item six is the covert human intelligence sources bill Um, The Minister has written to advise that the covert Human Intelligence Sources Bill as introduced related to reserved or expected matters, and as such the Department has had no role in the information of the legislation and will have no role in exercising the powers contained in it. However, an amendment that has been proposed by the Home Office would impact on the Northern Ireland Criminal uh, Injuries Compensation Scheme. Essentially, it would provide for the continued availability of Criminal Injury Compensation Scheme in respect of activities authorised on foot of a proposed amendment to the Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act of 2000. The Minister um, is content with the proposed amendment. Home officials have been advised um, of the Minister's position and a legislative consent motion on this issue is not required from the Assembly, so it's more um, for noting for members today, if members are content to note the information.
6: Rude.
0: Item 7. Uh, at our meeting on the 4th of June, the Committee agreed that it was content with the proposal to extend the powers of courts in Northern Ireland to try certain uh, sexual and violent offences which have been committed abroad through the UK Domestic Abuse Bill by way of an LCM. Uh, the Parliamentary Under Secretary of State for Justice and the Minister for Safeguarding have recently written to the Minister of Justice, advising of their intention to table further amendments to the extra-territorial jurisdiction's provisions. Part 1 of Schedule 2 to the Domestic Abuse Bill will be amended to ensure that UK nationals who commit marital rape abroad in a country where it is not an offence can be prosecuted in the courts in England and Wales. The Minister's content for the inclusion in the Bill of corresponding amendments to Northern Ireland provisions to enable prosecution in Northern Ireland courts in such circumstances and has advised that the proposed amendment does come within the scope of the LCM which was passed by the Assembly on the 23rd of June last year so again that's information just for members and um, by way of noting Good. item 8 uh, is the licensing and registrations of clubs issue page 261 to 325 uh, at our meeting on the 26th of november last year committee considered correspondence from the committee for community seeking comments on the licensing and registration of clubs bill the committee agreed to seek views of the department of justice and the place on the clauses to the bill relevant to their responsibilities including the new offences, penalties and enforcement requirements and whether there are any resource implications and if so how they would be met. Responses have been received. They are in the meeting pack. The Department indicating that it has been engaging with the Department for Communities on the development of the bill and the Minister of Justice gave her approval for the offences and penalties to be included. The police response indicates that it fully supports the offences and penalties and also makes a number of comments and proposals and highlights a range of issues including potential resource implications. So members, there is a um, draft response uh, from this committee to the Committee for Communities highlighting some of the key issues raised um, for your consideration. Um, If members are uh, content with that, we could send that uh, to the Committee for Communities um, by way of giving them uh, some kind of response from this committee. linda Dillon, um uh rachel woods and emma rogan so linda thank you chair um just to relation
9: to the friday and saturday night issue chair, and, and i accept that um please may need to have some assurance around in terms of personnel around how many nights or days this this would be in place, but the exclusion of Sundays for me would be an issue because obviously on bank holiday weekends Sundays are, are I think should be at least in, in consideration. So probably on that one um, I'm not really content. I cannot understand the, the request around the one year came pilot
0: I get that, but this was on this for me, will
4: be an issue. Okay. Um Rachel Wood. Thanks, Chair. Um yes, there's you know I did Clarion adjusted this at the start um and will do it again. Um, but I wouldn't be able to support the line um, in terms of the um request to enter Friday and Saturday nights along with uh with Linda there. Um, it just, it's not practical um, for many of the businesses that this would apply to but I, I do appreciate the place's response but I wouldn't be able to say so it would be We my be in terms of the committee. Um, I couldn't support at this stage the inclusion of um, the consideration to introduce a late night levy. No information on this, this hasn't been discussed before. Um, and I don't see how that um, could make it way in our committee response without um, having evidence of what that actually means and what it looks like. Um, I also was to appreciate, in terms of the PSNI's view, and that remains there, be about the longer hours associated with increased alcohol consumption towards closing up time and drinking up time. it may give rise to an increase in anti-social behaviour and on-street drinking. Um, I would see I could see how they could make that argument, but I couldn't buy in that in terms of competitive, um, as it would maybe displace um already existing and perceived antisocial behaviour. So I can't I don't know how you you could say it would arise. Um, I'm not too sure about the one year trial either. Um, again, I don't know what that would look like, how that would be enforced, and who would be involved. Um, so I. I couldn't put my name to that, unfortunately. Um, I'm happy to certainly have that you know, we've received the PSNI's viewpoints and that those are the viewpoints of the PSNI, but I wouldn't be able to put up my name towards those three issues just um, on the basis of what I know of the industry and my previous comments on this bill at second stage.
0: Okay, thanks, Rachel. Emma Rogan.
5: Thanks, Mayor. And um, look, um, something similar there to um, Rachel on the, the levy. My issue with it is, and um, licensed premises are already been struggling and have been do and done have done so, and um, probably since the onset of COVID. And I do think it would be unfair then to levy them to police the late night economy. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how it would work in practice. I, I just don't think at this stage that it would be um for on um, on those um
0: businesses that are already struggling so
10: much so we wouldn't be able to support that um, going forward either. Okay. Um, Sinead Bradley. Thank you, Chair. Sorry, apologies. I thought I had raised that earlier. Um, yes, there, there are the, the points have raised largely but I do think as well perhaps a lot of the background to this and um, maybe stemming from the time sort of prior to COVID in terms of the thinking and the drafting behind it. And we all know that these businesses are really on their knees and struggling to survive. And some of the proposals in here just won't wear you know, in the new climate as we go forward. So I do think it, it needs a fresh pair of eyes on it in this new context because, you know, we're going to be so dependent. Um, on on the, the likes of these businesses because you know these are a large part of also um the base business of you know, a lot of the tourist industries you know in areas like my own south down we depend on the, on that type of premises being operational and functioning and I could see how this can kind of financially just you know, could be the last um the last piece to you know, close the door on some premises so I would have deep concerns. Thank
0: you, chef. Okay, thank you. Don't think there's anybody else. Chair, sure, I just oh, make a point or two in relation to
6: the late opening. Traditionally, Sunday wouldn't be the night for late licenses, so I don't really see an issue there. Generally, it is a Friday or a Saturday night, and the police are obviously very supportive of of having it limited to Friday and Saturday. And I think you know it is indicated in the report the. The ongoing issues there are with, with alcohol. Alcohol abuse continues to be recognised as significant public health, community safety and social issue. So, you know, I think we're all supportive of that and I, I certainly for one would not be supporting the late licensing, going against the police recommendation for the late license on a Sunday. And um I think it, it's it's Alcohol continues to be a serious problem, the, the misuse of alcohol and the easy access to it and it's available so easily now especially for young people and the risks involved with and so many public representatives talk about the, the implications of it but do very little to control it or use their influence on it so this is an opportunity for us to use our influence to try and c- control and limit the, the use and abuse of alcohol. Chairman, I would not be supporting the lesson on a Sunday
0: well um okay, so obviously member there's a, a pretty wide view there <laughs> being expressed for members um, and at the end of the day this is this is being dealt with by the Communities uh, Committee, I'm quite happy that we just forward on the response from the PSNI and that's something that the, that committee should consider in its scrutiny work. We as a Justice Committee don't need to be expressing, I suppose, an opinion in respect of that. So if members are just agreeable, we'll forward on the response that we have received uh, from the PSNI in respect of that and the Communities Committee can um, kick that issue around them whenever they come to consideration. Sure, are we not? We asked for a, a response in relation to this. Oh yeah, they've asked for a response, Gordon, but we ultimately don't need to indicate, I suppose, a, a formal view on it. Um, Linda and then Rachel. Sorry, chair. Um, you okay? Um, yeah, I, I can that it's already on, but I think we need to make it clear that it's not a view that's
9: supported by the committee. That this is not a committee view and we don't we don't actually have a committee view. I think we need to make that clear just in case there's any misunderstanding understanding it goes to communities that that this is a just, just a committee view and that we support it in any way. So I think we just need to be very clear about that. You know, accepting that what Gordon says that there's a there's a there's a way and varied um go to and there are and very views in relation really to this and, and there's no inquiry <coughs> think that everybody would be more content if we weren't
0: ready to the communities committee that there is no justice committee to be honest or agreement on this. Okay. Um, Rachel? Thanks Chair. I think
4: um, with the first part of the response has been put up just with regard to the Department of Justice. Um, Position is, is quite straightforward. I think it's the, for me, it's, the, it's us potentially supporting what the PSNI said. I think we could, we could forward that all and, and, and we've noted it. Um, obviously, there'll be no reposition, position, but just to confirm that the late licences are not just extending to Sunday, this would be any next of the year. Um, and particularly important, um, again, declaring an interest in previous life running events and music nights. So It's not just about a Sunday, it's about any particular night of the week, Um, and any time that any license is is going to happen, the fleets are aware of that, that those provisions are already in in place. So, I I mean, I I would be content for the first section of that draft response to go, highlighting the department's response, and then also the PSNI, then, and that that the committee doesn't have an agreed stance on it, just for for noting. I think that could be worked in.
0: Okay, thank you. Well, listen, I'll bring in the clerk whose um, draft effort has certainly stimulated a lot of consideration. Christine?
14: (laughs) Yeah, I think um, if the committee's content, what we'll do is we'll just highlight that the committee sought um, the views of the department and the PSNI and having received them is forwarding them on for the the committee for communities consideration. And that's probably the easiest way, and that deals with any um, concerns that it suggests this committee has formed a view on any of it
0: okay so listen i i i i'm happy enough that we were we're saying that we haven't taken a view on it but we're providing the information to them for for them so if members are content then we'll do that all right reluctantly yeah all right thanks okay um item nine the explosives uh Appointment of Authorities and Enforcement Amendment, EU Exit Regulations 2021. Departments proposing to make a uh, statutory rule to make minor amendments to the Explosives Regulations 2015 order to implement the Northern Ireland-Stroke-Ireland protocol and the withdrawal agreement. The rule is subject to the negative uh, resolution procedure. The 2015 uh, regulations are required to be amended to ensure that they continue to operate effectively in Northern Ireland after the end of the implementation period. Minor amendments will replace references to member state with an appropriate term that includes Northern Ireland only uh, and an EEA state. The rule will also ensure that the uh, CLP regulation, which sets out internationally accepted definitions and criteria to identify the hazards of chemicals and requires duty holders to classify, label and package hazardous chemicals before placing them on the market, in accordance with its provision, will continue to apply. So, um, if members are... Let me just see. Sinead Bradley, then Emma Rogan. Apologies, Chairman. Oh. I was just up and
5: You're
0: okay. Uh, Emma Rogan. Me
5: too. That's okay.
0: No, that's fine. So if there's no further information or clarification required, then um, we'll indicate that members are content with the proposed statutory rule. Members are agreed. Um, item 10. Item uh, Pages 355 to 382, the Department is intending to undertake a 12-week public consultation on increasing the general civil jurisdiction of the county courts in Northern Ireland. This relates to the financial limits which govern the court tier for civil claims such as for personal injury and breach of contract. The consultation paper sets out two main options, but the committee will be advised of the outcome of the consultation. Um, So if members are content, we'll note the proposed consultation and then we'll consider the matter when the results of that process and proposed way forward are available, unless there's any views members wish to submit at this stage. Otherwise, we will uh, note it, members content to note. Okay, Um, item 11, uh, in September 2020, the UK government published a response to its consultation on proposed amendments to the Modern (coughs) Slavery Act 2015. And the next steps to strengthen transparency and supply chain arrangements for commercial businesses and for the first time to extend them uh, to apply to the public sector. The Home Office now plans to legislate as soon as parliamentary time allows. This consultation exercise did not extend to Northern Ireland and since then the department has been working with other relevant departments, Home Office officials, the business sector and other key stakeholders to begin scoping out the impact for commercial businesses. Uh, and to help shape a public sector consultation paper and a commercial sector engagement paper. Department is intending to undertake a 12-week engagement exercise as soon as practicable after committee consideration to consider it to consider it as in a position to take forward any required LCM in parallel with Home Office legislating for the transparency and supply chain changes. Further information will be provided to the committee following the conclusion of the engagement uh, exercise. So if members are content, we'll just request a a little bit of clarity as to what the difference is in engagement and consultation, which are referred to in this um, particular paper. Um, to identify what that difference is and why then a full public consultation is not being undertaken for both commercial and public sectors so if we seek that clarity um, and it may be a straightforward answer but i think it's worth seeking the clarity around that then we can um, put it back on the agenda when we have a response if members are content that we seek that clarity okay Item 12, uh, development and implementation of a statutory registration scheme for legal aid practitioners. At our meeting on the 12th of November last year, Committee considered a written update provided by the Department on the development of the statutory registration scheme for legal aid practitioners. We agreed to request further information on a range of issues to assist consideration of proposals. The Department has now provided the additional information and indicated that officials wish to brief the Committee in February or March on the post-consultation report prior to publication and to provide further detail on the proposals being developed. The Department has also initiated an engagement with the Law Society, the Bar and the Bar Council and plans to hold the first stakeholder reference group meeting on the proposals in January. The Department intends to undertake a further consultation in mid-2021, which will include outlining plans to provide suppliers with an indication of how the scheme might develop and an opportunity to influence the future direction of the scheme. Also members just to note the additional information provided by the Department um, on the development of a statutory registration scheme, um, unless there is any further information or clarity that is uh, required prior to officials attending a meeting to brief the committee so if members are content then uh, to note that um, and also if you're agreeable um, can we forward the information provided by the department on the proposed schemes to the public accounts committee for their information and any comment um, that they may wish to make because this scheme is being developed in response to a PAC recommendation so if we can send it to the PAC members are agreed item 13 committee forward work program the department has provided a list of items of business that it wants. committee to consider at meetings in February an oral evidence session on the budget has also been scheduled for the meeting of the 4th of February and arrangements are currently being made for oral sessions agreed by the committee last week on the committee uh, reform uh, bill so if members are content we will seek to schedule the work items that have been requested by the department for our meetings in February. Uh, Also again just to advise members there was further guidance provided by the chairperson's liaison group for committees in light of current ongoing restrictions that set out potential actions for committees uh, to discuss in terms of minimising face-to-face interaction and reducing risks at committee meetings. There's guidance at pages 535 of the meeting pack in respect of this and there's a number of uh, areas and options that are suggested in uh, respect of that and obviously members um, we've been seeking to try and reduce the length of these meetings and so far it hasn't been too bad in the month of January and I'll with your help continue to to seek trying to do that. So uh, there's guidance there members for your information in respect of that matter as well. So the final item um, is just the correspondence. There's 11 items of correspondence and uh, i'll draw attention just to two of those items Um, items seven and eight their responses from the department and the probation board uh, in respect of a copy of their action plan to address the findings and recommendations in the criminal justice inspection northern ireland report on the probation practice in northern ireland Uh, at our meeting on the 10th of december the committee agreed to consider um, getting further uh, information by way of briefings in respect of this issue um, so if, if members are content, let us, let us ask um, for a written update on the delivery of the action plan in, uh, in terms of what they're doing in six months' time. We can request that and then we could schedule an oral briefing if members feel that that's useful. Okay, are members content to action the other items of correspondence as set out in the cover sheet? Uh, unless there's any items members wish to, to comment on, we'll action it as outlined. Members agreed. Right. Okay. I don't have any business as chairman. Is there any other business that any member wishes to raise at this point? No other business. Okay. Well, thank you. The meeting of the committee then. The next one will be uh, today, week at two o'clock, and that will be in the Senate Chamber and via the Starleaf facilities. So, members, thank you very much for your uh, participation today. Meeting adjourned. I don't to raise taxes, anything.